Hello and welcome to Into the Aether. It's a low-key video game podcast. My name is Brendan Bigley. I'm Stephen Hilger. Welcome back to the show. I think we wanted to start uh, this episode just by just by like yelling from a mountaintop our gratitude at all of the people who have been sending us uh, posts on Instagram and threads and Blue Sky and in the Discord um, posting screenshots of their Spotify wrapped saying that we were somewhere in their top five most listened to podcasts and the people who uh, also did the same thing from Pocket Casts and all of the all of the apps that do that stuff. Uh, I just feel like there's been like a huge outpouring of people saying that we were their most listened to podcast this year and even like on the back end of Spotify they have a they have a like version of Spotify wrapped for people who make things and post them to Spotify and it was like almost a thousand people have us as their number one podcast that they listen to and that was like that's a that's a wild statistic I think I think it was something like over 3,500 people it's in their top 10 that's amazing so just like a huge heartfelt thank you to all of you from us like for real yeah my my brain has an ever dwindling shield that just kind of blocks out compliments so if i can actually internalize any of them that that's a testament to like the sincerity of the sentiment yeah you posted on thread something to the effect of like it's real. it's hard to even gauge that kind of stuff because i mean really like every week it's just you and i on skype just like having a conversation yeah. and then posting it as an mp3 file somewhere else so it's it's almost hard to even like to consider the the scale of it but i mean just thinking about where we started and where we are now it's like it's shocking it's shocking to like grapple with actually i'm really proud of us and i i'm really grateful that that many people listen to us and feel that passionately you know because yeah. again I, as much as we've grown in size like what i'm really proud of is that like like we're still a small show by like industry standards obviously yeah, and i just feel like everyone who's here like is happy to be here. We're not just like you're in the ground floor, baby. Yeah. Only up, only up. <laughs> we didn't autoplay when you looked up how to tie a tie on YouTube, you know. And it's like <laughs> just the next shit that yeah. the algorithm has for you. Um, <laughs> I have a weird uh, like emotional investment in the how to tie a tie videos. I I don't often have to tie a tie, so I always kind of forget. And there's like this one YouTube video from 2014 of this person like kindly thought just recorded this like here's how to do it and all the comments are like i watched this on like my first night of prom and then on my wedding day like thank you for everything <laughs> everything you've done for me <laughs> so screw us thank you to the all the how to tie a tie youtubers out there yeah for real especially the whoever did it earliest and got that search engine optimization shout out to you <laughs> anyway for real thank you all for listening and for for sharing such kind things about the show yeah yeah really really super super nice just just kind of an unbelievable thing to watch happen every year anyway that out of the way games gaming video games interactive media games baby gaming let's hear it what do you got today <laughs> I have, come on where's the content i have i have some games uh so you and i you and i are like in goatee prep mode at this point yes. um we were just talking right before we started recording about how I part of the process I don't we talked a little bit about our process on on any percent recently but I, a part of the process I kind of forgot about that I that I go through is going back and listening to our conversations about every game that's in my top 10 um, and just like trying to recapture that like okay when this game came out how did we feel about it like in that moment and another piece of it is like jumping into games that came out a while ago 
or even more recent ones and just like playing them for like an hour or two again just to kind of like get back in the spirit of them be fresh yeah Yeah, exactly like start from the beginning you know jump into a clean save file etc etc so like uh I, i i've been just like jumping in and out of games a bunch recently but all of that said there was one game left on my like i think this would count if it's good enough and i like it enough and and uh, it came out on December 1st, which was my my like for real cutoff. And that's SteamWorld Build. SteamWorld Build is a new game by the uh, I think I think it's published by Thunderful Games is the name of the publisher. I just think over the years, you and I have talked about a couple SteamWorld games and we always walk away from them being like, these are fucking great. Like SteamWorld as like a concept, as a brand is really fascinating because every game, for the most part, there's like one or two sequels in there. But for the most part, every game is Taking the SteamWorld idea, which is like steampunk robots, usually um, like kind of Wild West inspired, and they'll just like graft that aesthetic onto a completely new genre of video game. So you have things like uh, SteamWorld, uh, oh my God, SteamWorld Quest, Hand of Gilgamesh, which is like kind of a Slay the Spire, um, like deck building experience. Uh, You have things like SteamWorld Dig and SteamWorld Dig 2, which are like kind of 2D Minecraft, almost takes on Terraria um, and like a city building thing. And you have this, SteamWorld Build, which is a a new game that just dropped. It's on a bunch of platforms, including Switch, which I'm surprised by. And I actually haven't seen any footage of how it runs on Switch. So I I would say like, maybe look that up before you pick it up there, because it seems like a game that would probably like really push that hardware as much as possible. Yeah. But SteamWorld Build is an interesting game where it's kind of a halfway point between being a little bit like Dwarf Fortress and a little bit like a city builder and like city management game. And knowing that they were going to go and and jump into this genre, I just I feel like after years and years of playing mostly every SteamWorld game, if I if I can, I think every single one, they've all been so good that they kind of have like blank check energy for me. Like I do whatever you want. I'll be there. Like I'll, I'll, I'll be first in line for whatever your new thing is. And the idea of them taking on a city builder was exciting. The, the real hook of this game though, is that you have this city that you're building on the surface and simultaneously you're upgrading a mine shaft. So you can send a bunch of people down into mines and be mining out the area under that city and uh, continue like creating more and more levels of the mine shaft. Uh, and all of the mining you're doing down there is also helping the stuff you're doing above ground in your city and vice versa. And it, it just creates this really interesting synergy where I, th- I think they've like taken what are essentially two completely separate games and smashed them together and found like really smart ways of gluing them mechanically uh, in, in ways that make you want to jump back and forth between levels. So I, I streamed this game uh, when I first started playing it. I streamed it for a couple hours. I was really only planning on playing for like an hour because I was so tired uh, and then ended up, I think, playing for three. Like it, re- it's one of those like just time melts away kinds of games. It opens, I think, with maybe some of if I'm being brutally honest, some of like the weakest narrative sauce that a SteamWorld game has had. Um, it's like a prospector and his daughter, both robots, obviously, showing up in this town uh, and trying to figure out this like old, maybe alien technology that is somewhere in this town. And to do so, they need to like build a town and then dig into the dirt to try and retrieve some of this like old technology, which does seem to imply like this world the steam world quote unquote takes place like way after humanity has kind of like 
probably nuked ourselves there's a lot of like radioactive uh symbol symbology all over the place implying that like there was some kind of nuclear war and the thing that came out on the other end was like old western robots (laughs) Uh, which is funny but all that said i mean even kind of removed from what's going on narratively they just kind of thrust you into this big open deserty space and it's just like kind of classic city building fair you know you're putting down roads you're connecting those roads and and uh and putting down like housing to bring in a bunch of workers so in this case you're like uh bringing in um just like kind of classic workers who will just go around and like work in like the factories you build and the farmland you build and things like that what i think is really smart though is their process for working your way down like the tech tree, if you think about it from like a civilization standpoint, like as you continue to upgrade certain things in civilization, you unlock more things and then can keep, you know, just like kind of expanding and building outwards. SteamWorld Build takes a really interesting approach where instead of building outwards, you're kind of layering yourself. So as you continue to make your way through the the tech tree, quote unquote, of that first like group of workers that you're building, you can then level up those workers into engineers. And that's like the next tier. So like if, if you were thinking like going from, you know, the, the prehistoric age to like the Bronze Age in civilization, it's kind of that equivalent. But instead of needing to like build outwards or like destroy the things that you had made before, you're just leveling them up into the next era, which, you know. That is the thing that happens in civilization. But I think in terms of keeping the city space that you're trying to build relatively compact, I think it's really smart for them to say, like, you don't need to destroy this engine or this this worker's house to build an engineer's house. You could just turn workers into engineers and that's good for everybody. And the engineers will have all the same needs as the workers, but like a couple extra on top of that. And if you can fulfill all those needs, you can level the engineers up to another tier and things like that. And all doing all of that stuff will upgrade different things that you can do in your city. If you've played any city builder before, it's not that different. I think the real the real hook of this game and the real moment where I was like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm fully in and this is a game I'm going to come back to a lot, is once I unlocked the mineshaft and started sending some of the workers down into the dirt is when things get really interesting. Because the mine, as I mentioned, is like kind of a completely different game in a lot of ways. So when you get down there, it's really like you need to build little barracks for your miners and the engineers who live down there and the prospectors who can like, oh, you know, they, they can mine out like certain kinds of materials and metals and things like that. And the and the regular miners can just do like dirt and 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 uh and like gravel and sand and things like that. And you start to like build all this machinery down there that kind of automates a lot of processes. Um, It becomes like a Factorio door fortress kind of thing where it's like once, once you establish... I think your base of operations and the machinery you want, it becomes this machine that's just like propelling you forward and progressing the game over and over again, which I think is really smart because you go from this space of like resource scarcity where it's like, okay, in the city up above, I need a bunch of iron. And the only way I can get iron right now is like buying it from a trader who comes in every once in a while. But if I can, you know, take some of that iron and very selectively start to identify places in the mines where I can be able to mine iron out and build machinery down there then i can get my city functioning where everybody is having their needs met because you know we have enough iron to build this thing and this thing and this thing and this thing simultaneously getting enough like engineers and like aristocrats and things like that on your surface level will also allow you to do things like mining oil wells down in the dirt and things like that which is bringing even more money etc etc and all of this stuff just kind of feeds into itself and loops itself out one of my weirdly favorite things about this game i don't know why is uh there's when you're down in the dirt as you're continuing to like kind of chip away at edges and 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 expand 
the space that you're digging, um, some of the mines will start to collapse on themselves a little bit. There'll be like kind of like little tremors and you have to put down pillars to specifically like support the dirt and support the mine shaft that you're building uh, and prevent that from happening. And I don't know why that's just become like my favorite thing. It's just like, okay, I'm going to assign these miners to like dig out all of this space. I'm just going to sit here with pillars at the ready. As soon as I see a place that I think needs support, I'll put a support down. And it really, it takes something that I think is supposed to be passive and makes it feel more active because you really need yeah, to be on your right. toes. And I just, I, I just think that's like another like brilliant little tweak on all of this. And I think that's kind of the thing about SteamWorld build is like, they feel to me a little bit like, and this is going to sound silly but i promise it makes sense they feel a little bit like apple to me where like <laughs> uh, like apple just sat back and let people make the worst fucking mp3 players possible for like almost five years before they announced the ipod and it was like once the ipod came out everyone was like oh shit yeah this is what they should have been all along um and same thing with like smartphones and eventually the iphone in 2007 and they just do this over and over again it's like kind of their thing it's like okay there's a bunch of people making really horrible smartwatches. we're gonna sit back we're gonna see what people like about them we're gonna see what we could do with it and eventually the apple watch will come out and obviously be the best one and is now like the best-selling watch in the world by far they just do this over and over again and the steam world team feels a little bit like that to me where like they really do sit back and just kind of like when they say they want to go into a new genre they just ingest all of the goodness of that and like find little quality of life tweaks that i think just make it better and better and better i think one of the games that I, i've been thinking about a lot while playing steam world build is is harvestella which is a game i was really really excited about we talked about that game a lot and i still love it but it's a take on Rune Factory. It's like a Square Enix take on Rune Factory. So you have this marriage of of an RPG, like a like a action hack and slash RPG, and also a farm sim. And as much as I love the RPG and the hack and slash stuff in Harvestella, the farm sim I think just ballooned in complexity to the point that I like felt like I was having a hard time engaging with it. Yeah. I got to a certain point where like they were introducing all of these different machineries and automations and things like that that instead of making me feel like they were taking a, a load off or, or easing some of the burden of needing to manually do a lot of the processes that I was doing in Harvestella, instead, it just felt like it added more complexities and actually took this thing that was relaxing and was calming and made it a little bit too, a little bit too hectic and a little bit too um, all over the place for me to really wrap my head around. And it unfortunately almost like undoes, I think, part of the charm of playing a game like that. SteamWorld Build on the, on the inverse is really smart about when and how they introduce these different kinds of automations and how they layer systems on top of one another, where it feels like a really natural progression instead of feeling like it's going from zero to 60. It feels like, you know, I, I, I can go from this space of like, I just really need iron and it's really hard to get to like, now I have this little machine and I just need to assign enough guys to that machine and that's fine. And I don't really need to think about like the 14 steps I need to reach to hit that machine. It's just like, well, if I do everything else, there's kind of like a set structure where every time you get down to a new layer of the mine, you have to start from the beginning, essentially. It's like, okay, well, it's pretty easy. I just put down enough barrack space for my miners to show up, and then I let them kind of do their thing, and then I put down enough space for my engineers, and they do their thing, and then I can build machinery because I have engineers and miners. And, like, you just kind of layer your way up that way. And I think that's really, I think it's really smart. And it, and it creates um, a really natural rhythm and a really natural loop that feels a little bit like starting a new scenario in like Roller Coaster Tycoon. It's like you always know the couple things you need to do right when you start in Roller Coaster Tycoon, right? You have to put down enough pathway to like just kind of expand into the land and kind of imagine the coolest thing that you'll ever build, right? You just like imagine the cool roller coaster you build. But 
before you can do any of that, you know, you need to put down a couple of bathrooms. You need to put down like an ATM and you need to put down like an information stall and you need to put down like the hamburger stand and the French fry stand and all these different things to kind of please people. You need to hire all the angry customers as entertainers. So yes. your your overall happiness level is is actually positive. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and hire some people to like clean up all the puke and stuff like that. And like once you do all of that is when you can start putting down rides and then, you know, you put down like the, the more chill rides and they make enough money to allow you to build the more extreme stuff that brings even more people and then you can level that up into like I'm going to build my own roller coaster and I feel like SteamWorld Build kind of gets into that same avenue where once you start mining or once you like start with a new level of the mine it's like you just kind of have the couple things you need to do before you can let your imagination run wild and then kind of do what you want which I think is really nice. You bring up a lot of really interesting observations about like what works for you and what doesn't with like I guess for lack of a better phrase the skill trees of like a life sim or, or city builder like I think I'm thinking about uh, Stardew Valley as like the gold standard in a lot of ways here and obviously that's not quite a city builder but I think it has a lot of the same yeah. elements and I was thinking about like you were saying how in Harvestella there are additions that kind of just widen your amount of choices to the point where it's overwhelming yeah. like I think about uh, Watch Kitchen Nightmares Gordon Ramsay's constant <laughs> advice is like keep your menu small mm -hmm. like the menu's too long and if you have too many options, like as the player, we're not going to really know what those mean until we try them. Whereas I think, in my opinion, what's more successful is like something like the greenhouse in Stardew Valley. It's one of the later game things you can build towards. Yeah. And that whole game, you are completely beholden to the seasons. Like you have to know what grows and what season. And in the winter, everything is dead. You can only really make ranching. Like you can sell eggs and and like animal products but all the stuff that grows can't anymore so the option of getting a greenhouse just like very simple like you can grow stuff in the winter is what that means mm -hmm. it's like you have another season of profit from this thing i also think there's somewhat of a connection to just skill trees in general like we always make fun of skill tree perks where it's like your crit does 0 0.03 more damage right yeah. we don't really see that or feel that in the game so i think like the best skill tree is like really give you something that like allows the player to express themselves creatively. Like it will change the play style in a way, or, you know, it changes how the game operates or like it fulfills a need that's been there for a long time. Mm -hmm. So like in, in uh, Baldur's Gate three, for example, when my monk got the ability to stun enemies, that's when everything changed, you know? And it's like, I think I know I'm, I'm picking from a lot of different genres here, but I think with city builders, like they are, built around the idea of like there is a need for something and what's the solve and do you have enough resources to do that yeah so i think having upgrades be like this thing finally addresses this need you've had for the whole game or this thing's gonna like change maybe what you prioritize in your like creative expression of the town but giving you maybe too many lateral options that's where it can feel maybe a little bloated. Yeah, yeah. I, th I think one of the smarter things about this game too um, that I, I haven't really touched on yet is every, I think it's four minutes, at least at the start of the game, maybe it changes as you progress more, but every four minutes there's a train that comes into town. And when the train comes into town, there are two different mechanics that kind of interact with that. So on one hand, you have just the ability to like buy kind of like exciting weird upgrades. So there's always a selection every time the train comes in of three like fun weird upgrades so like one of them will be like we're just going to give you a bunch of gold and it's going to be deeply discounted you know simple stuff like that but other things will be like you could buy this upgrade that you can then slot into i don't know your farmland or something and it 
will make sure that your farmland is producing like twice as many goods or those goods are being delivered to warehouses or places they need to go twice as fast, things like that. So you get these like really meaningful, fun upgrades from the train. On the other side, it's also a way of easing the burden of needing to mine out all of these resources or generate all these resources from your city because you can just very easily be like, well, I have this huge surplus of uh, wood, for example, because I have all of these different um, like lumber mills just kind of like farming out all of the farmland here and I don't need all this wood and uh, the the lumber mills I'm using to turn those uh, those those logs into like planks and boards I can then use to like build structures. They're not going fast enough. So I just always have the surplus of wood. So whenever the train comes in, I can set a, a constant trade that's like I will give you you know 10 logs for you know three pieces of iron every single time the train comes in and you just kind of like set that and set as many as you want and you can set that with any of your resources including money so you could be like yeah I'm just gonna like I have enough money I could straight up just like give up three thousand dollars every single time the train comes in every four minutes uh just if it means I can get enough like glass to be able to like make more moonshine or something so I think that's a really smart avenue also where it's like, okay, especially when you're first starting the game out and you don't really quite know your way around what resources you want and the, and the chain of, of production and the chain of uh, distribution specifically for that stuff where you can be like, because I don't fully understand how to get iron yet, like I could just buy it from the train every time it comes in um, and the train will update what resources it has available to trade with as you progress to the point where you need them which i think is really smart it's like as soon as you get to a point where it's like i need um i need like meat uh which in this game obviously isn't meat it's just like a piece of metal that looks like a steak which is funny um <laughs> you, you like they're like cow they're like like robot cows that they like turn into like robot meat it's really funny but like if you need meat and you don't have enough like space for farmland or something you could just immediately go to the train and just be like okay every time the train comes in i'm gonna get 10 meat and that's gonna be enough to feed the town till the next time the trade comes in really 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 smart i think for people who are just starting out and the other thing that i that i've been thinking about a lot even though i was kind of dunking on it a little bit at the beginning of this is there is a narrative like there is a story and even if you don't connect with what the actual narrative is and what the story is you don't connect with the characters it does mean that there is like an end goal in mind like there is a, a thing that you're constantly working towards which i think is really smart so instead of just being like you know I think I think in Roller Coaster Tycoon to bring up that as as an example again, you frequently get to these points where it's like, well, the only thing you're trying to do is you know bring in enough money or make the park work worth enough money, and then as soon as that's done, you kind of move on to the next park and you just continue to do that over and over again. Steam World Build having an actual like narrative center to it with like stakes and reasons to be doing things, I think just adds a little bit more for people who maybe aren't used to city builders and aren't used to that just like intrinsic need for wealth and capitalism, you know, like it, it gives them <laughs> it gives them a different right. frame to view the game through, which I think is really smart. And on top of that, if you're like, that doesn't sound interesting to me, you can also just turn off the story. There's a button when you start a new campaign where you could just be like, I don't want to do the story. I just I just want to build a city. So it really seems like they just kind of accounted for everything, <laughs> which I think is great. Like it, this is this seems to be a game where the more of it I play, um, I played for a couple more hours after after I did my stream. It just seems like every time I sit down to play it, like I'm having even more aha moments. I'm having even more moments where I'm like, man, this team is so good at distilling what is fun in each of these genres down to like its most basic concepts, but still leaving enough depth that makes you want to keep coming back and want to keep engaging with it and keep having those aha, holy shit moments, um, yeah. which is so impressive. I just think it's so impressive to do this over and over and over again like th this team like 
truly hasn't had a miss as far as I'm aware. I haven't played a game by the SteamWorld team that I didn't like. Yeah, I think SteamWorld Quest, I I think had the unfortunate timing of coming out like 20 minutes before Slay the Spire. Yeah, that was, that was pretty fucked up. Yeah, it was a case where maybe they should have waited another year before they like did yeah. their take. How could anyone that? have known, you know? Right. Exactly. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm not sure the exact timing there, but it was definitely the same year at the very least. But yeah, I mean, even that game, I think, is wonderful in its own way. And I think uh, SteamWorld Heist is probably my favorite. I just think that that game rocks. that like really focuses on what's fun about something like XCOM without like the annoying bits of like the percentage to miss and stuff. And they know the thrill is like landing a shot and like applying that to a 2D side scrolling perspective is really fun because you can see like where the bullet bounces off and stuff. It's it's great. Yeah. Both of those games are available on mobile. Also, it's worth mentioning um, that that is where I play both of them. And on other consoles, I believe. Yeah, because yeah. that was, I think, on 3DS first, but it's been ported elsewhere since then. Yeah, I just mean it's like so widely available. Like even if you just yeah, have your right. phone, you can play SteamWorld Quest and SteamWorld Heist, which are both amazing games and great on mobile. That's actually where I played uh, Quest for the first time, which uh, was awesome. I think it's interesting, too, to point out that like the narrative is there to maybe provide a goal for people who are newer to this genre. Yeah. And like need that because I I remember hearing like when Tears of the Kingdom came out, I remember hearing like a lot of people who weren't able to connect to Breath of the Wild. It seemed like overall Tears of the Kingdom worked much better for them Mm. because there was like more of a perhaps like narrative link to the moment to moment gameplay of like connecting things and like you're given way more like direct goals whereas i think for some people breath of the wild felt more aimless potentially Mm. because it was so open right so i think it's interesting to think about like how subjective player motivation is and if there's a way to like give that motivation to every kind of player personally i prefer the openness to breath of the wild i think like my one kind of gripe with Tears of the Kingdom is that I found it to be a little busy, but I think it's interesting to just to see like what works for everyone in that way. Yeah. I was reminded, maybe this is a cursed reference, but I was reminded of The Sims busting out when you <laughs> told me about the story in uh, Steam World Build because The Sims busting out, as far as I can remember, was the first console Sims game. And that game had this whole bizarre campaign mode where like you got like a better job and a better house and like lived with different people as you played the game. And I I wonder if like that was specifically like a console audience needs that direct narrative maybe more than like someone who's used to like the more existential nature of just life sims or city builders on PC. Can I, can I read to you um, the beginning of the Wikipedia page for the Sims busting out? I want nothing more. This is why I bring this shit up. In the console version, Malcolm Landgrab is going around his neighborhood stealing items in return for unpaid rent. <laughs> <laughs> the player's objective is to complete each career track, unlock and buy everyone's many possessions back and become rich enough to inv- to evict Malcolm Landgrab from his own mansion and then move their sim in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is the Godfather also. <laughs> I distinctly remember becoming a movie star and living in a haunted house. Uh, (laughs) That game was awesome. There's also online play. Yeah. They released it for the Game Boy Advance and the N-Gage also. (laughs) I can't imagine it on Game Boy Advance. We should have played that for our big episode. The Sims. I had it on PS2. I have never played this one. I don't even know if I'd heard of it until you just brought it up. It definitely it did not come up on our very long list of games we should have played for the Game Boy Advance. I will say that. (laughs) 
<laughs> when we did all of our research to figure out what like hundred whatever games we were going to play, The Sims Busting Out was not one of them. I do think The Sims Busting Out having that story does communicate maybe like <laughs> like the mode the expected motivation for like a console game and a PC game in yeah. a strange way. But yeah, that game was wild. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just looking at screenshots of the Game Boy Advance version. It is such a cursed object. Yeah, that, so funny. this was the same era where I'm pretty sure the herbs came out not long after this and the black eyed peas were just in it. And you can like, yes, you know, have friendships and relationships with like Fergie and Will I Am. I'm just I'm looking <laughs> there. So there seems to be this thing in The Sims busting out on the Game Boy Advance and probably <laughs> in the main version as well. But just in the Game Boy Advance version where you can, you build like relationship meters with the people who live in town yeah. and they all they all have names that are as good as Malcolm Landgrab. Let's hear uh, I'm just, yeah, there's uh, Dwayne Doldrums, Mel Odious, <laughs> Dusty Hog. I vaguely remember some of these. Oh my God. Vernon Peeve, <laughs> Daddy Big Bucks. <laughs> <laughs> this game might've had a profound influence on me. Oh my God. I realize. Why? Yeah. why? <laughs> okay. Hang on. AJ, yeah. play it. Play us back in. Welcome to a very special bonus episode of Aether, <laughs> where we're reviewing the entire Game Boy Advance library. Uh, we threw all of it out. The only one that matters is The Sims Busting Out. So get ready for five straight hours of The Sims Busting Out <laughs> for the Game Boy Advance. It's just like Malcolm Landgrab, like crying outside his house, like, let me back in for five hours. <laughs> this is unbelievable. All right. Yeah, man. You know what's weird? I haven't played The Sims 4, uh, despite all my busting out experience. Me either. Played, like, maybe that's one we should play one day. I would love to. Yeah, especially yeah. before whatever that new thing is comes out. Um, they're working. They're working on like the next generation of The Sims, but they're saying it's like like a full like redo of of the of the brand, which is interesting. Wow. I mean, they've been updating four for like what a decade. Yeah. It's wild. Yeah. Anyway. Let's let's bust out and move on to the next. <laughs> I wonder game. how much it costs to get all the DLC for The Sims 4 these days. I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess. Keep it. Keep in mind that uh, The Sims and Maxis is still owned by Electronic Arts. Yes, that is informing my number, which is why it's at least in three digits. I would guess it's two hundred and fifty dollars at least. <laughs> let's hear it. Steven, we are five dollars away from it being one thousand dollars it is nine hundred and ninety five dollars oh to play all of the sim stuff that's a lot it's a lot of money. <laughs> it came out in 2014 right sims 4 i maybe earlier yeah i gotta look this up okay yeah it came out in 2014 it's it's been around for roughly nine years even if you release the $70 game once a year for the last nine years it is still more than that <laughs> It's kind of amazing that this game, which is about like managing your life and your funds and your finances, can cost one thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Just <laughs> like I don't know, sign sign up for uh for QuickBooks, get it? Yeah, get a year of QuickBooks instead, maybe. I paid twenty dollars to remove the bladder meter from my game. <laughs> Why do I need to manage that? I, that? That's always like, I always love building the house and building the family and thinking like who everyone is. And then the minute I have to like 
do the math of how much coffee they should have to avoid like extra toilet time. I'm like, I'm out. I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. It does it does really make you look in the mirror a little bit, I think. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. I don't want to Are we busting out, Steven? <laughs> Can we move on? <laughs> no, we're trapped. One here. of our weaker bonuses. We do <laughs> Toss this one. Okay. Malcolm can have this one. Dump it. You can grab this. Dump it. Trash it. This one's garbage. I love how that's like how they end so many sketches and I think you should leave. So yeah, this one stinks. Trash it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Brendan. Steven. Congrats on finishing yet another Game Boy Advance bonus episode. Thank you so much. I'm excited to to move on. This one took a lot less us. prep than last time. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm happy. I'm very proud of us. Anyway, I have another game uh for this episode. Let me tell you let me tell you before you even say what it's called that I I do have the Nintendo.com slash US slash store page for this video game open and ready. <laughs> Just to hit buy. Yeah. I'm actually curious. I don't know how we could retrieve this data, but I'm curious how often you've done that. Like how often you've purchased the game. While you're talking about it. <laughs> yeah. I I would guess it's happened at least six times. Yeah, probably at least 10. If I if I'm being honest, we're doing it for five years. I would guess at least once every two months of recording. I, I just distinctly remember multiple times where I go like, do you think you'll check it out? And you went, oh, well, I already bought it. So like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, this game is called The Cosmic Wheel Sisterhood. One of like the best game titles of the year, I think. Really great. Uh, developed by Deconstruct Team and published by Devolver Digital. I totally missed this game. And then someone in the Discord graciously added me uh, and was like, I think you like this. And I immediately learned it was about making your own tarot cards. And I was like, I'm in. That's all I need. <laughs> I, I think so. For one, for those who don't know, I love tarot. Um, but I do feel the need to specify. I love tarot in the same way I love astrology, where I think I think it is actually like healthy to take it a bit with a grain of salt. Like, I think there are people out there who like have convinced themselves and others they can actually tell the future and tell you your fortune. And I feel like that is like manipulative. You know, I think that yeah. that's like not great and not to gatekeep what true tarot is, but I think most tarot readers who are like more familiar with the practice, see it as like just an opportunity for reflection. I really think it's as simple as like engaging with any other art where like you watch a movie or you watch a show and you reflect on the themes and maybe even reflect on your own life alongside that. Yeah. And that's what tarot is. Tarot is not, this is going to happen to you, but it's a, here's like an idea and how does this relate to your life? And like, what can you kind of gain from that? Mm. And, you know, I think like there are spiritual beliefs tied to it. I don't want to discredit that. I just, I do feel the need to point out there are people that are like, stealing your money and and trying like it's a step away from the people who say they can talk to the dead you know i feel like that is like not great um so just feel the need to say that out loud but i love tarot and i i follow a lot of tarot readers and i love artists who make their own decks and the idea of being able to make your own cards and then that's also 
beautiful to me because that is like an extension of one's own interpretation of the card, you know? Right. Yeah. I have a, a, it was gifted to me by, by a close friend of mine. It's a David Bowie tarot deck and Bowie worked closely with this artist and all the cards are like super psychedelic. And even for like Bowie standards, they're very out there. Um, (laughs) Like the fool is named the sacred clown, stuff like that. You know, I think the magician is named the star man and the is like the star man can't be reversed even if he is like, mm. okay cool death is malcolm land grab <laughs> I need, oh my god if someone makes a busting out tarot deck i'm gonna explode <laughs> <laughs> that that truly will be the only one in existence <laughs> the emperor is daddy big buck <laughs> Anyway, I, I really like tarot. So this game, you play as a witch named Fortuna who has been banished by her coven of witches for like delivering premonitions that have kind of disrupted the flow of society. So in a way, I think maybe the developers have similar feelings to me mm-hmm. where like there is actually danger in someone telling a group of people like you're all going to die next week, yeah, which right. is basically <laughs> what she did. She was like, the end of the world is happening now. And then the head of the coven was like, even if this is true, like you should check in with me first before delivering this message because it completely throws us into chaos and also like undoes my status as leader. Yeah. So that's like the inciting event of the story and the game begins with you playing as fortuna who is this witch who has been banished to two thousand years of isolation on this comet in space Mm. um it's actually really i love the design of it it's this like surprisingly despite like the severity of her punishment it's this like cozy like house that is constructed on this comet but she's there you know in isolation and i can't help but read that and maybe this is just like permanent rewiring of my brain after after quarantine but it it just feels so much like a post covid19 work where Mm. like so much of the game is about like coming out of isolation and meeting old friends and reconnecting but even if it wasn't conscious like i do think that that experience will probably inform a lot of art going forward yeah but essentially so she's banished to isolation on this cozy comet house um, and she decides to make a pact with a behemoth this kind of like demonic being to give her her magic back it's also worth noting that she had her tarot deck taken from her. So she has no magic and no deck while she's in isolation. So she got like 200 years into this punishment, made a pact with the behemoth, and they are giving them their magic back, but they also have to make their own deck from scratch. So, and that's where the gameplay comes in, where the game begins with you talking to this behemoth. And it kind of reminds me of like early PC, like not, I guess like kid picks stuff like, like it's definitely (laughs) like not as elementary, but it has that same thing where it's like you choose a background and then you choose like characters you want on the card and then you choose like little effects. And the game seemingly has a lot of meaning scripted into all those elements. So like, Uh, When you're making a card, you can choose, you can cycle through all the different backgrounds and they all have a name and kind of a brief description of like what they mean historically or like to this kind of very detailed history of this coven of witches and these like unique gods. I don't know if I fully understand, like there is like an economy to it where you have like a number of gems for each of the four elements. And when you choose one aspect of the card, it uses pieces of that. So like, I don't know if I ever confidently know why 
I'm like being limited to certain choices. But regardless, I think I've spent a lot of time making cards and it's pretty cool. Like it, it's definitely made for PC in mind. I'm playing it on Switch. Um, mm. So like you can select a piece and then choose if it's like behind or in front of something and then also scale it in size and rotate it. But I really feel like a personal sense of ownership over all my cards and it is like truly magical to see the game pull meaning from like your own creation and that that to me is worth playing this game alone for like i think that that thrill it reminds me a lot of chicory where like that game often invites you to draw and even if you're not i mean i think you know as someone who is an artist like it was oh you want me to draw something of course but like (laughs) even if you don't identify as that or don't have experience with it like i do think that game does a lot to make you feel like proud or at least like personally identify with whatever you create you know like that game is about being an artist but i think what you know moments like whatever you draw like a character will hang up in their house stuff like that i think makes you feel an attachment to it even if it was just scribbles yeah the tarot deck making stuff is awesome. And I really like the dialogue with the behemoth. They're a really fun character because they're really scary looking. Like they wrap around the whole house and they like look at you through the window and they have like a big third eye and also a third eye on their chest and fangs. And they're always breathing a little bit of fire, but they're also like, hey, what's up? <laughs> like <laughs> One of the first scenes is just like, I thought you would speak in like, you know, middle English or something like you're kind of way more casual than I thought you would be. Yeah. But there's a really like, I really immediately liked the relationship between the main character and the behemoth because they're both characters who are coming out of isolation. It's revealed very early on that that the behemoth, you're always kind of on edge with them. You're not sure like where their allegiance is, but they candidly admit that they are like tired and perhaps a little bit traumatized of like always being summoned into existence and then kind of cast away again. Mm. You know, like they actually, their design, they have all these golden rings on them. And it's revealed early on that like at a certain point they were like cut into a million pieces and then someone like fused them back together to get their wish. So I think they're, they're tired of being used regardless of like where they end up falling morally. But it is just like, it is kind of fun to see these characters who just sort of like have this very transactional relationship slowly kind of get to know each other better through tarot like you do a reading for this character which acts as kind of the tutorial of the game and you do a reading with the cards you made so it will kind of set the board and be like this character's past and like what they have to fear and you choose the card and then you can also choose how you read it so there are like usually between like three or four interpretations the character has and they'll share that with the person they're doing a reading for and sometimes it varies between like kind of vague and then some of it's like oh you're gonna murder someone you know and that kind of goes back to like this person being gifted with this power of like they can actually in the game see the future and the game is also making it clear that like as the player it seems like all our readings and all our choices are like setting our fate in stone Mm -hmm. so it's it's a game with multiple endings and seemingly a lot of variation within the game itself and it's all kind of predetermined by what we choose early on which i think some people might bristle up against but i i think at least for right now i'm only like two hours in but for right now i think it's broadcasted enough that i'm excited to see where i 
what ending I'll get based on like my own intuition, which is also how tarot readings work. So all of that is working really well for me. I'm, I'm very gripped by the interactions and by this like surreal setting. The one aspect of the game that kind of loses me is the role of the protagonist is a little bit awkward. Not in that I don't like her because I do, but I think there's that aspect of shared ownership that can be confusing where so much of the story is about her life before this punishment and when we the player are meeting all these characters for the first time she is catching up with them which can work but sometimes feels a little bit confusing where mm. it's like I don't know this person yet. Like, you know, like you're kind of banking as if I do. And then between every chapter where like the game is structured, where like it almost reminds me of like something like Valhalla or um, what was the plant shop game that you I was, really liked? See, I, I've just been waiting to ask if the game that you would compare this most to is Strange Horticulture. Yeah, honestly. I mean, because Strange Horticulture was a game where people would come to your like slightly haunted plant store and you would kind of get their story by finding them the right plant and it's kind of set up in a similar way you don't have a store but it's like people visiting you because one of the first things that happens is essentially this like witch lawyer shows up and at least for me like lifted the ban on having visitors so i'm still the character is still like stuck here but people can come by and visit and you'll do a reading and have a conversation so like that loop of the game of just being in this place that's kind of all i needed like i i, I kind of wish the game let us infer about the character's past as we are like these other characters futures because mm. what how it actually works is in between chapters you get like flashbacks of her life in the coven and those just don't really work for me at all like i don't know what happened but i just feel like the dialogue kind of notices dips and maybe just because i'm more interested in like the cosmic of this game and the coven story is like her on earth with her witch friends and like there's some interesting moments but it and this is maybe a little bit mean but i i feel like whenever there's dialogue that's like really trying to capture the way like cool young people talk there's always a little bit of like a thermometer in my brain of like yeah. When is this when is this going to hit don't fuck your selfie for right. life is strange. You know, and it it hasn't hit that yet, but there's just like I feel like it's maybe trying a little bit too hard in some moments mm -hmm. to like be cool. And maybe that's not my place to say cuz like I don't think I'm cool, so I don't know anything, but like it feels more artificial in a way that like the rest of the game feels very authentic, which is ironic that it feels like more emotionally vulnerable when it's in space and like with demons. But I think <laughs> I still am like really interested in, in where the story is going and all the characters. So I want to see it through to the end. From what I know, it's like a 10 hour game, which is kind of a no brainer if I'm already enjoying it this much. And it largely plays out like a visual novel. So I do think maybe it could have benefited from like being more focused on like just the kind of core loop of it. But I do think they're doing a lot of really interesting stuff with gamifying story and gamifying like a deck builder to be narrative. Um, it's something that I'm really interested in because the one I, I've taken a couple game design classes at this point and the game that I made for like my first very simple twine uh, text game was actually a tarot game. It was kind of like if inscription was maybe a little bit more of a comedy. And I just liked the idea of like player choice manifesting into these cards. And mm -hmm. I think that this game is like really doing brilliant stuff with that aspect of it. So I think while some of the scenes could be hit or miss, 
they've really succeeded at the core idea of the game and the core promise of it. So I, I'm really enjoying it. I'm excited to see it through. Yeah, that sounds really, really great. I'm, I mean, just the comparison to Strange Horticulture alone is kind of all I need. Uh, yeah, I, I think. But I, I just love the art. For those of you listening, you should <clears throat> just look up this game and just check out what the art looks like. I, it's, yeah, it has, it has a version of pixel art that I, I have a hard time describing. But it feels, it feels like, um, almost like in the lineage of Super Brother Sword and Sorcery EP, but with a little bit more focus on detail than than abstraction, which uh, I think I think works really well in this game's favor, specifically with the thematic round it seems to be covering. Yeah, the, the presentation is great. And the soundtrack, too, is really good. It's kind of like a lo-fi soundtrack the whole time. Oh, so nice. I find it to be like when it's really working, it's very hypnotic in a good way. Yeah, I, and I, I, I'm open to being changed about the like on Earth scenes, but there is this kind of awkwardness of like because we're being given total authorship over the cards and also being able to choose the interpretation of the cards it feels that there's maybe a little bit of tug of war between like the character the game wants the protagonist to be and who we are playing them as Mm. and i'm wondering if that's intentional but it's not a deal breaker it is i think that's a really hard thing to do you know commander shepherd is one of a kind for a reason. Uh, and even then they kind of mess up in moments of that game as well. Uh, so yeah, that's, those are my early thoughts on uh, cosmic wheel sisterhood. Very much enjoying it. And I, I appreciate the person who recommended it to me. Thank you for knowing my tastes. Yeah. I'm excited to play that. That's, that sounds really great. Um, so wait, you're, you're saying maybe not on switch though. Oh, um, I think it works fine on switch, but I, I just think the, the creation of the cards feels like it was kind of made for mouse and keyboard. Mm -hmm. So like, I think you can still really enjoy, like I'm enjoying it on switch and you're only given few enough commands that it's not like drawing and trickery on like the pad or whatever, but it does every now and then it's, Oh yeah, I wish I had like, there is a cursor on the screen right now. Yeah. Uh, But I think switch is like, otherwise it's fine to play it there. Have you, do they let you use the touchscreen at all? Uh, I've been playing it docked. I'm sure you probably could. Um, but, uh, it's, it's, it also like, you know, you can, what's neat too, is like when you select one of the backgrounds for the cards, the card itself only covers like a corner of it. So you can like drag the background around to decide like what you want in the frame. The card that I like the most is I have one of just like this red planet in space and a guy sitting on a chair surrounded by potted plants with a big star behind his head. And a comet is just like hurling towards the planet. Like, I don't know what this means, but this is just what I ended up choosing. That's amazing. And then the game is like proud defiance of like the inevitable destruction. Like, yeah. Oh, hell yeah. Gall, the tarot card. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's really cool. I think um, a deck builder where you make the cards alone is a very interesting idea. That's kind of, I mean, inscription without saying too much does a version of that as well in a very different way. But I think it's like cool to have ownership of cards in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just I'll close this segment out by just saying one of my one of my favorite fantasy books of all time is uh, The Night Circus by a, a writer named Aaron Morgenstern and every time around around this point in the year I'm like do I read that again just cuz I I love it so much and I feel like it weirdly sounds like this game captures a lot of the same spirit as that book so i think i think it might be a good salve for me not just rereading the same book over and over again (laughs) which is which is definitely a a problem i fall into i think you'll have a great time with this cool um so that's that's cosmic wheel sisterhood very good game dude dude gaming gaming (laughs) dude land grab uh all right malcolm why don't we move on to the next game we have here goodbye bye bye uh breaking news from 
sims.fandom.com slash wiki slash Malcolm underscore Landgrab. Malcolm Landgrab <laughs> is a pre-made sim who appears throughout various games of the Sims series. He is featured in The Sims, The Sims Bustin' Out, The Sims 3, and The Sims 4. He's in The Sims 4. He's in The Sims 4. No wonder there's $1,000 of DLC when, when Malcolm <laughs> when Land, Landgrab, when Landgrab gets his, his filthy hands on it. <laughs> Is he like the hero Brian of The Sims that they just keep trying to patch him out? It kind of seems like up. it. Oh, yeah. His first appearance is SimCity 3000, where he's the oh. CEO of Land Grab Industries. <laughs> so he's like, he's like a Maxis villain. He's, he's the not closest even... we have to a canonical <laughs> villain of The Sims shared gaming universe. You know what I love about uh, SimCity for the Super Nintendo? Bowser is one of the natural disasters you can summon. That rocks. It turns out uh, in The Sims Bustin' Out, Malcolm is impervious to death. And if he gets killed <laughs> off, the Grim Reaper himself will show up and resurrect him. Which does weirdly feed into the bit from the last section about Malcolm Landgrab being the representative of uh, the Tarot of Death. Yeah, this is way, This is not a coincidence. Sometimes fate shows its true face. The you know? only way to kill Malcolm Landgrab officially in The Sims Busting Out is uh, by having him eaten by like a Little Shop of Horrors mutant plant, uh, <laughs> which for some reason the Grim Reaper does not show up in the event of somebody getting eaten by the plant, but it does mean you can no longer beat the game. <laughs> wow. But I imagine he still lives in the like plant stomach, you know, scheming. <laughs> Like so when Sims Five comes out, I'm gonna have like I'm gonna bust you know, out of here. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna finally bust out. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to be reborn with my druidic powers gained from the stomach juices of this plant. Why wasn't there a sequel to The Sims busting out? That's what I that's what I'm asking now. I don't think it did very well. I don't think that matters. <laughs> with The Sims. Yeah, I think I think it doesn't matter anymore because if Malcolm Landgrab gets his way, there will be a sequel to The Sims busting out. Although I, he wouldn't like that because he's the canonical villain of that game in particular. Yeah, I think he wants The Sims to end. I think he does, he's like he keeps saying this is not a game directly into the camera. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's like he's like the Kefka of The Sims. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I just I just laughed like Kefka by accident. That was, that was that's also how Malcolm laughs. Um, yeah. All right. <laughs> we we got to get away from Malcolm Landcraft. We need to. <laughs> it did this. This reviewed better than I assumed it did. I'm looking at the review scores of uh of busting out. Even his, <laughs> even the GBA version did all right. His personality traits are snob, evil, and dastardly, and he aspires to be a public enemy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's, his romantic partner is named Mom Landgrab. <laughs> Mom? He's dating a woman he calls mother? <laughs> Me and Mom are busting out. Finally getting my own place. <laughs> if you Google Mom Landgrab, I think the FBI is going to storm your room right now. <laughs> what are you looking up? Don't look up. Maybe we shouldn't. <laughs> this feels like a make or break moment. What new information did you just find? All right, nothing. I was just thinking about the other person who famously calls their wife mom is um, Mike Pence. Mike Pence. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I just assumed this was Mike Pence for like minute two. <laughs> this is the, the peak of Mike Pence's creativity is saying, well, what if I went by land grab <laughs> with, two, with two A's? Yeah, <laughs> but I'm still to throw people my... off the scent. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> I'm still calling my better half mother. I got to draw the line somewhere. <laughs> I'm busting out of here. Let's go, mama. We got to bust out of this segment. <laughs> yeah, let's, this, this, I feel like sick. Let's move on. Steven, can I cleanse our palates? I, I just want to say for the listener, we both we both struck silently like a we fit trainer pose <laughs> and took a deep breath after Pence grab land land grab. Feel the burn in your thighs and Ooh. glutes. What else you got for me? What are we what else are we talking about today other than Malcolm? I'm ready to salute the sun. I'm ready to cleanse our palates with a better, probably, Game Boy Advance game than the Sims busted out. <laughs> That's right. Wow, good connection. Yeah. Yes, uh, I will say this game. This game was was taunted to us by a friend of the show, uh, Dom Nero, co-host of Eye of the Duck, a great movie podcast. If you haven't listened to Living it. Manifestation and, of Zant the Usurper King. Yes. <laughs> um, he just kept like without any like other information, just kept sending us screenshots of this game called Good Boy Galaxy. Yeah. That's a itch.io game that is made for the Game Boy Advance. Like you can act, I think you can actually get it on a cartridge. You can. It. Yeah, so yeah. It, it sounds like there's going to be a physical version of this game that you can buy on cartridge, but it, for the time being, uh, when you buy the game, there are a couple versions of it that you can download. One of them is like, here is just like the game as an EXE file to play on your Windows computer. Um, but alternatively, you can get an actual like Game Boy Advance ROM file and put it on a flash cart and play it on your actual Game Boy Advance, which I have tried doing and it works, which is wild and very cool. Thank you again to Kyle Starr for making Game Boy Advances for us, which was like super yeah. helpful during the prep for that episode uh, way back when. Um, still still coming in handy. But also that means that you can play it on like any handheld emulator console. So like if you have a Miu Mini, for example, or I have been playing on the Retroid Pocket Flip on my way into and out of work, I just threw the Good Boy Galaxy ROM on there and started playing on there. Here's the thing about Good Boy Galaxy. Um, it is an unbelievably impressive video game. I think. And and the reason I feel qualified to say that is because I think you and I have a very good handle on what is possible for the Game Boy Advance as like a piece of hardware. I think you and I have played so many games on that console and we have seen so many different experiential, I would say almost experiments on that console as well. Some people were trying to, you know, push push the console and what it was capable of to its like real absolute extremes. There are a couple of games like trying to make 3D work on the Game Boy Advance, which is a nightmare and doesn't. There are other games that are like very bare bones. And then there are some games that have just like immaculate pixel art, incredible gameplay. I, I feel like a lot of a lot of what you and I talked about in that episode is like the Game Boy Advance was pitched really initially as like, here's the power of the Super Nintendo in the in, in your hands. And that was really evidenced by like Nintendo themselves porting a lot of Super Nintendo games onto the Game Boy Advance. Uh, same thing with games like all the Final Fantasy games that got Game Boy Advance ports from Square Enix, things like that. Like we just saw a lot yeah, of Yoshi's Island. I remember was like one of the earlier ones. And that really I think still is a showcase of what's possible. Yes. Graphically on that console. Totally. Um so I, while I think that's where the Game Boy Advance started over the course of its life cycle, as more developers got more and more comfortable building for that hardware, and as that hardware also like blew up in popularity and was extremely, extremely successful, um, you started to see developers really like 
branch out and I think define what the Game Boy Advance is instead of it being just the Super Nintendo in the palm of your hands like the Game Boy Advance became its own entity and almost has in the way that Dreamcast I think for you and I has a lot of like real specific aesthetic and gameplay touchstones that like feel like Dreamcast games to us you know things like the really vibrant blue skies and the clouds and a lot of that stuff I feel like there's a version of pixel art and a version of uh, music and a version of gameplay that really feels like I think uh, part and parcel with the Game Boy Advance and its identity as, as a piece of hardware. I think like maybe the best, most shining example of this always and forever will be the Legend of Zelda, the Minish Cap. I just think yeah. like some of the most incredible pixel art ever. It's one of those situations where like if you download that game on your Nintendo Switch right now uh, and like throw it on a TV blown up as large as possible, that pixel art still is stunning. It's so vibrant. It's so amazing. And on top of that, the game itself is I mean, immaculate. Like the Minish Cap is just an amazing Legend of Zelda game. I also think mechanically too, like it's most clearly the game that came out when 3D Zeldas were becoming dominant. Yeah. But it's a top-down one. But like they've incorporated a lot of 3D design, like the floating action button for A, mm-hmm. uh, stuff like that, where it's like, and also, I mean, like there is, it's not necessarily full 3D, but that game is using 3D perspectives in a lot of areas to, to, successfully you know like there, there's that one temple where you're in that spinning barrel oh yeah it's you have the first to, like, one. walk yeah. you have to walk forward to, and it's like it's really hard to do that i mean the oracle games also have moments like that which came out not too long after majora's mask but i think the limitations of the game boy color made thinking in 3d feel really weird yeah whereas the game boy advance you can pull it off right with with the right touch yeah all all of this is just a precursor to me saying i think good boy galaxy is one of the most like visually stunning games i think made for the game boy advance just kind of ever it's like it's up it's not it's not quite minish cap level i mean that's like such a high bar to hit but the fact that it's i think even in the same strata as that i, I think that just says a lot about how 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 uh visually stunning this game is and how much they've accomplished um the fact that it like runs on a game boy advance at all is kind of amazing to me given what they're trying to accomplish that said though what is the video game so so good boy galaxy is a game where you're playing as a, a dog uh who, like a dog in a spacesuit who is flying a spaceship and crash lands into this planet um and the ship gets all fucked up um and has the a very limited ability to warp between like just very close planets and over the course of the game you want to continue upgrading your ship so you can go further and further and eventually make your way home you know it, it's it's not exactly like the most new idea for a video game i think it reminds me weirdly a lot of ratchet and clank in that way um where like yeah. over the course of the game you're just unlocking more planets and making your way there what i think this game does brilliantly though is each of the planets that you can visit is its own little metroidvania level and the way that you make your way around these planets is uh it's like a 2d platformer and you have three main tools at your disposal at any time you have your gun which shoots bullets you have a shield which allows you to take one hit of damage and then you kind of have a couple invincibility frames and then you're kind of like left without a shield for a little bit and then your shield respawns kind of like halo or something um and the third thing you have is a jetpack so you can jump but if you have your jetpack you can jump a little bit higher a little bit further and the way you make your way around each of these planets and each of these levels in good boy galaxy is you're just trying to like find pieces of things that you can you know affix to your ship to allow you to go further and and travel faster and things like that but you have to walk through through these gates that are placed 
very, very specifically around each of these different planets and each of these levels and each of these kind of like Metroidvania spaces. And when you go through a gate, it will remove one of those three items that you have from your uh, tool set. So you'll have to make it through an entire piece of the level without your shield. So if you take any hits, you're dead immediately. Or you'll have to make your way through a whole piece of the level without a gun. So you just can't get into combat at all. And the game is so brilliant in the way it has developed these levels to essentially have solves for any of those three possibilities. So the level is solvable and explorable in a completely different way if you don't have a gun versus if you do, or if you have the jetpack versus if you don't, or if you have a shield versus if you don't. For example, like there will be a whole area that is blocked by like just kind of big spikes coming out of the ground, which means that if you jump onto those spikes and there's no way to get past the spikes really without jumping on them, if you jump on the spikes, you die immediately versus if you make it through that same piece of the level again, but you do have your shield equipped, it means that you can jump onto the spikes, take some damage, have invincibility frames, keep running, keep running, keep running, keep running. By the time your shield respawns, you're off the spikes and you've made it past that area which is so so smart to build levels build multiple metroidvania levels that essentially can account for all three of those possibilities and the eventual fourth possibility which is you have made it through the level while missing each of the three pieces of your main tool set and then you get them all back uh, so you're kind of having this like little mini metroid happen every single time where like the beginning of of most metroid games is like samus losing all of her abilities and then needing to regain them one by one it's like a mini version of that where you just lose one thing every time you make it to a level and then as you continue to acquire them again you lose another one and another one and then you regain all of that back up and then you're super powerful and you know the level because you've made your way around it a whole bunch the second factor of this is on top of just like making your way around these levels trying to regain your abilities and find stuff that upgrades your ship there are also npcs all over the place who are all just like super fun weird characters and each of them have friendship cards that you can unlock that just essentially just mean like you and i have become friends but usually the way that that is acquired is via doing some kind of quest. And those quests can be as simple as like, I just want to see if somebody can make it across this boat, uh, this like little river without taking any damage. Cool. You got a friendship card. Great. Versus something a little bit more abstract, which is like, I, I don't feel tough anymore. And I wish there was a way to feel tough. And it's like, I have no idea how you solve that. Three planets later, you get these things called the tough gloves, which is like, oh, cool. Let me bring that back to that guy. You give them the tough gloves and he's like, wow, I look so cool in these gloves. And then he gives you a friendship card. Um, so the game is, progressing in two different avenues simultaneously one is you're just getting more ship upgrades so you can explore more planets and kind of go through that loop over and over again the other side is keeping an eye out for different ways in which you can get more friendship cards from people and when you hover over each planet it shows you how many friends you've made on each planet so you have this like just like really kind of wholesome layer on top of the classic metroidvania structure and i just think all of this coalesces in like what is one of the better Game Boy Advance games. Like, I think if this was released in the era of the Game Boy Advance, you and I would have talked about it and you and I would have brought it up on that episode and been like, this is like maybe a top 10 contender. This is at least one of the honorable mentions. Definitely something that we would have brought up because I think it's pushing at so many different, so many different ideas and so many different genres. And it's also layering on top of that an incredible soundtrack with great gameplay and some of the best art I've seen on the Game Boy Advance. I mean, there are like full ass animated cutscenes in this game, which is a thing that I didn't really see any of when we were playing stuff on the Game Boy Advance. And I think it's really impressive yeah. to be able to pull stuff like that off. Yeah, I think the only game that did that was Fusion. And even then it was a kind of limited, but there were like those close-ups of Samus mm. on the elevator or like flying away into space. And, and those still look amazing. And they kind of surprise you given the limitations of the hardware. Yeah. I think you're totally right. Earlier you mentioned how like 
the aesthetic of the Game Boy Advance is something like you can just say this is looks like a Game Boy Advance game and people will kind of know what you mean. Yeah. Same with Dreamcast. I really do feel like, and I've said this before, but the limitations of certain eras really inform style. Mm-hmm. I think we'll have a better idea of what our current limitations are in like 10 years, you know, so people can like, I think we're starting to see like what games from like 2011 still look good today. Mm-hmm. And it's always like the games that are going after hyper realism have a shelf life of like six months, you know, like oblivion looked like shit a year later, you know, (laughs) and that's, but I think that's like kind of endearing for that game for the specific style of failure. It like turned into success. Like the fact that like an orc can just be flat green the whole way and have like (laughs) hyper realistic eyelids. So this, this is, this is like a high art by accident experience. But yeah, I mean, I think it's amazing that people still feel compelled to revisit eras of of game aesthetics and also of game design. And I think it might it, it's a fun challenge to to think, OK, what can we possibly achieve with this level of hardware? Yeah. And it sounds like that idea of designing around limitation also informed this game specifically with like taking away powers and like being confident enough in the in the design of the game to know like, OK, what what are we asking the player to rely on by removing this power temporarily? Yeah, um, that's really cool. It's a really cool spin on on what feels like a really established formula. It's just like really smartly done. The game also, I mean, again, all the all the writing, and all the character work is like really funny. The game has a bunch of uh, boss fights that are like legitimately very difficult. The first one that I got into, I don't know. I think you can go in kind of any order because when you make it off the tutorial planet, there are three other planets that you can go to. And if I recall correctly, um, the first planet I went to, I ran into a boss there and I ran into that boss while I didn't have my shield active. So I needed to do the entire fight without taking any damage. And I think I could have gotten there in other ways. Also, I think I could have gotten there without the jetpack, for example. Um, so I could have like technically needed to do that. I think you need the gun to be able to fight that boss. But it was it was really difficult and really challenging. And I think ramped up a game that I was like, oh, I'm having a fun time jumping around here to like, oh, shit, they really want me to like master this. Um, yeah. And that was that was a fun I think that was a fun turn of events. Um, the game is also very generous about like checkpointing and saving and things like that so there's like a lot of auto saving happening and there's a lot of checkpoints that are happening so if you die on a boss you just spawn next to that boss again which is really nice yeah that's that's a modern touch that goes a long way i think totally like auto save in general it just it's brute it's a brutal reminder when you go back to older games and that's not happening and you forget yeah, yeah. you're like well that's 80 hours of persona 3 it is gone uh, <laughs> So just about availability for this game, as I mentioned, it's available as a Game Boy Advance ROM. You can also get it, I think, as a 3DS ROM as well, which is pretty cool. So if you have a hacked 3DS, you can just throw it on there. They let you download it alongside an emulator for PC. But it is also eventually coming to Steam and to Nintendo Switch. Um, I I don't know when... It's coming to Steam. It just says Q1 2024 and the Switch just says like coming soon. But cool to know that this that's not the only way it's going to be available. I do think there is something really magical about playing it on a Game Boy Advance. I think that was like, yeah, it's, it's just really fun to be able to do that at all. But outside of that, I'm just having a really fun time on the on the Retroid Pocket. It does remind me a lot. Speaking of other games that establish a Game Boy Advance um, kind of look to them. One of them that you and I have talked about in the past was Grapple Dog, another dog protagonist. Yeah, um, right. Which had like really strong 3DS aesthetic, but also 
also is a game that was made for modern platforms. You know, that was not a game that does run on, on the Nintendo Switch. I mean, on, on the Game Boy Advance. So I just think it's really impressive. I just think it's really impressive to like kind of achieve all of those like kind of throwback aesthetics with some modern flair and also have it run on the hardware that it's inspired by. Um, yeah. Just like a really cool marriage of like a bunch of different things. It's making me really want to play the Bloodborne D-Make of the, the PS1 that came out. And I think they just also released Bloodborne Cart. I think, yeah, I think that's soon. I think that comes out soon, yeah. um, which I would love to play. I don't think that's going to be available on Mac. So I think, I think I'd, I'm not going to have a way to play it. Um, we, Steam Deck. Oh yeah. If it runs yeah. on Steam Deck, then that would be amazing. It probably will. I mean, most things do. I've, I have yet to like, in terms of new releases, I have yet to find a lot of like, uh, oh, this doesn't work on this console. It's mostly older stuff. That's like kind of up in the air. Yeah. But you do have a Steam Deck, Brendan. I do it's have a Steam Deck. You. Yes. Yeah. I have been kind of messing around with the idea of getting the ROG Ally though. The, the the Republic of Gamers ally. I think uh, the, the Giant Bomb team has been calling it Roger Ally, which I love. It's just like, it's just really fun. But there, I, I don't know. There's something interesting about, about the ally being like, technically more powerful than the steam deck and also just running windows which is i think a thing that like most people have a better handle on than steam os and like linux I, I i hope that both companies i mean steam has already released their new version of of the steam deck the uh, mid-cycle refresh with the oled screen and the better battery life and it actually just seems like performance is better on that thing also which is kind of surprising because they they very much announced it as like this is not a new steam deck this is just like a quality of life upgrade to what the steam deck already was and then people started using it and they were like this is actually a little bit better but between that and and the ally i just feel like we have two really great tracks for like handheld pcs um and, I, and I'm, I'm really hopeful that they're successful enough that all these companies continue to try and go down that rabbit hole i think they will i mean the steam deck seems like the it steam deck a, is super successful yeah. yeah i i love it personally i think like i i mean i'm not quite as like neck deep in the retro handheld world as you are but i think it's it's become my go-to handheld even more than the switch is that might change when the new, I'm also curious, like, I do wonder if Nintendo is aware of all of this and like, if mm. there's maybe pressure for the new switch to like conform in some ways, or if it's just going to like the thing for me about the switch is like, I don't necessarily, I'm not, I'm not as picky about performance as I am nowadays about like the comfort of it. And I just feel like the joy cons just feel a little flimsy by comparison. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that not to mention the drift, you know? Yes. The the big, big, big shift for me with the Switch was when I got the uh, the Hori Split Pad compact controllers to replace the Joy-Cons like that Switch by itself has just made me love that console way more than I ever have, which I, I already loved it, to be clear. It, it might even just be my favorite. Like, it might be my favorite console ever. I love the Switch, too. I mean, it's a, an incredible console. But, yeah, I think, but making like, it more ergonomic and making it feel a little bit more Steam Decky in the hands um, has definitely, definitely, definitely aided my enjoyment and has made me play the Switch a lot more. Like, the Switch comes with me all the time now, which I think is really surprising. Like, I have I have a bag that I bring with me to work sometimes that I sometimes bring the, the Retroid Pocket Flip or the Switch in, which, like, now I'm playing the Switch on the subway which is a thing I always talk about thinking is like a completely unhinged thing to do. And I'm doing it all the time. I love that. Which, uh, yeah, ma makes me really hopeful for whatever the next one is going to be. I'm sure we've talked about this before, but all I really need it to be is like, let me please, if this doesn't happen, I will actually be like briefly an angry gamer, but let me transfer all my stuff over to the new yeah. switch. Like if there, if you can't do that, that will be an actual sin. I feel imagine Here's the thing. I, I've been thinking about this a lot because like, of course, with the Nintendo, you never quite know, right? Yeah. Like, Nintendo could pull that and that would be so upsetting. It would be low even for them, but it wouldn't be 
outlandish. To yeah, think it's not out like, of the realm of possibility. Yeah, right. The thing that makes me think that there will, if I had to put my money on it, I would say there will definitely be backwards compatibility is imagine the blowback from the development scene specifically. Like all of that work that all of these people have done to port their games to Switch and bring their games to Switch. If all of that is just undone immediately and Nintendo just announces a new thing that looks a lot like the Switch and basically is the Switch but doesn't run games from the Switch, they'll be like, what the fuck? Now we have to take all this time and effort and, and report all of these games to the new thing, which I think would would just kind of like hurt developer relations, which is the last thing Nintendo needs. Just based on based on like the, the history of all of their consoles and the ones that worked versus the ones that didn't, the ones that work are the ones that have the most third party support. And if they just like dunk on all of those third party developers by saying like you're going to have to invest the time and money and resources to then bring your stuff to the new switch again, I could see some people being like, no, <laughs> thanks, yeah. though. And also, I mean, they have invested enough in Nintendo Online that I would wager, like, you sign into that in the new device and you have, like, I just don't want to lose my purchase history because I have so many games. Yeah. I want it to be like Steam where it's like, I just have them or even Sony. Like, that's, that's kind of the modern expectation is like, you have the stuff you paid for. It's not a huge ask. So I yeah. want that, you know, whatever improvement in performance is fine. And yeah, that's like kind of it. I just like need those two things. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't really need much. I don't need it. I'm never, I'm never expecting it to be top of the line performance. However, I do think it's like, even for someone like me who is not asking much, I think they're, it's noticeably lagging behind at this point. Yeah. Like it was dated hardware at launch and now it's like noticeably weaker than the rest of the consoles. Yeah. I mean, even sight unseen, me being like, probably don't get SteamWorld build for the Switch. I don't even I don't even know if that's true. Maybe it runs great. But like, I mean, for all intents and purposes, I, I have to imagine it would have some issues when the city gets really big. I, I mean, another great example of this is the Arkham trilogy that just came out. Like they just re-released all, all three of those Batman games on the Switch. And the only one that works is the one that came out for like the Xbox 360, uh, which is. Oh, actually, no. Uh, so Asylum came out for the 360 and that runs great from what I've seen. And then once you get into Arkham City and Arkham Knight, they both just like really tank, which shouldn't be the case on a console like that. Uh, so yeah. from again, all rumor and conjecture. But from what we've heard of the if the follow up to the switch is closer to like PS4 Pro levels of power, then those games will suddenly be running great, hypothetically. And it, it just allows for a lot more headroom for a lot of stuff, which I yeah. think is going to be super helpful. Baldur's Gate 3 on Switch, too, is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> I actually like I played a lot of that on Steam Deck and I've been loving that on PS5. I actually kind of like that on the big screen. Me too. Personally. Yeah, but, that's what I found also. But I'll play it anywhere. Just, just put it in front of me and I won't move. Yeah, put, put it on the N-Gage. <laughs> put it on anyway, the Game Boy Advance. Why don't we, uh, what else we got here? Why don't we take a break? I do I do think uh, Good Boy Galaxy sounds awesome. I don't want to distract from that sentiment. with. No, it's a talk. great it's a great video game like at, yeah. like for real for real i am i am really impressed by it definitely want to give it a big shout out uh it's just available through their website it's just goodboygalaxy.com uh is, is the only way to get it right now so just a heads up on that hell yeah i i think we're going to end the episode with some updates on games we've been playing so uh let's move on to that let's do it let's bust out let's bust out <laughs> sorry i couldn't resist see ya brendan we're nearly done we're we've nearly busted out of our <laughs> of our episode cage <laughs> i know you wanted to give a couple updates on games yeah, brought up before. Yes. <laughs> i'm sorry i keep doing it how dare how dare you hit me with that and then expect me to take the lead on the conversation <laughs> yeah just throw an egg at you and then say like <laughs> all right chop chop yeah <laughs> keep it going podcast boy make it happen yeah. <laughs> hey clown face can i get a ride <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, I wanted to give some updates. So first, first update, first and foremost, um, you brought Octopath Traveler 2 to the show last week. Yeah. Uh, Octopath Traveler 2, a game that came out earlier in the year, does count for our game of the year. Oh, yeah. It's in, it's in, it's in the range. And uh, I think it's just one of those situations where because it came out so early, it's very easy to forget that it is a 2023 video game. But uh, thankfully, because of the way our Cody prep works, you brought it to the show again last week, which then prompted me to jump back into that game. And uh, Steven, I've been playing it a lot. Uh, when, when I when I say I'm bringing my switch on the train and playing on the subway, I'm playing Octopath 2. Like I, it's a really good like in between game. Like it's a great commute game or, yeah. or anything like that. Yeah, I, I think it's been really wonderful. I think in terms of just like I, I find that game to be really adaptable to whatever situation I happen to be in. Right. Like I could I can turn on Octopath Traveler 2 if I'm on the subway. And that means that I will probably just be like grinding some stuff out or just like exploring and looking for chests around the world and things like that. Or if I want like a really really focused session or like I'm playing in bed or something, that's the time to then progress somebody's story and jump into like a ne- another chapter of somebody's Absolutely. stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, which honestly that, that back and forth and realizing that the game is that malleable has, has just had me sinking like a ton of time. I think I put it in another like five hours since last week, just cause I, I can't, I can't stay away from it, which is great. It has, as you mentioned last week, like maybe the best soundtrack of the year, I think, uh, oh, yeah. just like hopefully one day they, they add it to streaming services. The first one is, so yeah, I think it should be a, eventually but yeah. there are also a lot like i've i've found a lot of really good folk covers of the songs on youtube oh really so people are like inspired by it yeah i might maybe i'll share a few in the show notes but um agnia's theme is like fucked up agnia's theme yeah. and uh oh chet's theme are really good yeah actually a friend of the show chase and matt of can't let it go and video game potimism. I'm not sure if it has been released yet, but Chase DM'd me like Matt noticed that uh, Particio's theme is like almost identical to a Kelly Clarkson song, and he like <laughs> mashed it up together, and it it is really cool. Like it works perfectly. <laughs> like the the horns like kind of like uh, it's it's good. You should listen to it. I'm not sure if he's released that to the world yet, but it's it's good. I, I, yeah, we'll anyway. listen to that. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, the thing about Octopath Two is uh, we talked a lot last week about like people got into the first one and some people bounce off the first one and there there are some like really kind of obvious pitfalls to that first one and the second game is just like a huge glow up like really just kind of solves almost all of the problems I think that the first one had. I do think like the the weakest point of Octopath 2 is like just some of the stories of the eight characters aren't as strong as the other ones. There are some that like just feel like obviously they should be the protagonist and the other people like should really kind of take a backseat. But even outside of that, I think I think for me, the thing that has been the most striking about it is like what a grower it is. I think for people who are jumping into Octopath 2 or maybe did jump into Octopath 2 and and bounced off, you know, within the first like three to five hours, I, I know it's a big ask, but I really implore you to go back and try it again and give it another shot and just get further in. I, I don't even mean like go get all eight characters and like get, you know, progress all of their stories. I think your point to last week is one that I've really taken to heart, which is like just find a couple people and really dig into their stories specifically. And, you know, the rest of the party that you bring with you at least will like level up alongside that, which is really helpful. So I, I've just been like 
cool. I'm settled on the four people that are in my party and I'm just going to progress their stories. And I feel like pretty good about that. And unfortunately, that means I'm leaving a lot of people in the dust. But say la vie. Um, I have not gotten to the point where I'm multi-classing yet, but I am really, really wow, okay. thinking a lot about that, which I think is exciting. I just I, I find that um, the moments where I'm just booting up the game and just running around and grinding and fighting battles while I'm like watching something on TV or on the subway are a lot more prevalent than me actually progressing any story, which is not really the way I want to be playing to be totally clear. Like I would like to be progressing the story more, but I do like having this game is just kind of like not quite endless, but just like a really lengthy experience in front of me. It feels to me a lot at this point where I'm at now, it feels to me a lot like kind of the midpoint of Dragon Quest 11, where it's like you have all of the party at your disposal. You really know, like kind of the stakes and the lay of the land and the world. And now is the point where you can just kind of like venture off and do whatever you want. And I'm really enjoying that freedom. I think I think that's a big distinction between the first game and the second game, where the first game really just kind of propelled you into continuing each individual character's chapters whether you wanted to do them or not because a lot of them weren't really very strong to now you can be doing that if you want to but there's a lot of other stuff to fill your time with if you it's want it's not the main event you know yeah. and it's like what i really like too is that a lot of the chapters like not all of them have boss battles some of them are just like yeah moments of story some of them have you know big climactic battles i think you're you're totally right that this game kind of like is adaptable to whatever you want out of that session yeah so and i and i do think it might require a little little bit of like prior vocabulary to kind of sense that because I think like for me what really helped unlock Octopath 2 was playing Final Fantasy 5 Advance actually full circle (laughs) for those who don't know Final Fantasy 5 is very much like the godfather of the Bravely Defaults and the Octopaths of the world Mm -hmm. where Final Fantasy 5 was a game that notably focused more on gameplay over story which I think was kind of a bold move at the time because 4 just came out And I think for, in my opinion, kind of boldly announces to the world like Final Fantasy is like a series that is going to always think like one step ahead of game narrative. Like what what are other games? What are the stories other games are telling and Final Fantasy is going to like one up that or kind of comment on that and sort of stand out in that way. Yeah. And five is like, what if you just kind of had like a very simple but endearing adventure? You know, it's a game where you you find three of the characters right away. The story itself like has the classic like get the crystal stuff going on, but it's it's notably more open and less kind of uh, narratively driven than other Final Fantasy games. But it creates the sense of adventure that I think is very unique to it and is why so many people have like sought to capture that game's magic mm-hmm. with games like Octopath 2 where really what Final Fantasy 5 is is like the first attempt at an open world Final Fantasy game you know where it's like it actually is driven by curiosity and by what you want out of it versus this is where the story is demanding you go yeah um and Octopath 2 nails that and you know I think once kind of going back to our conversation about like skill trees and and like player incentive like once you do find those guilds where you can equip subclasses or you find an altar that makes a character's core class more powerful it just continues to open up possibilities where it's like okay tonight might just be like me grinding with these four characters that i like and then tomorrow might be me recruiting everyone else and getting them up to the same level but then you'll stumble into like an item or you know just a moment like again the game stories while i think they're much better they're purposely simple and i think they're purposely written in a way that feels like people telling a story around a campfire Mm -hmm. every villain in this game 
has had the line <laughs> like a million ha ha's with three <laughs> exclamation points. And that kind of, I think to me, <laughs> sets the expectations at a certain level. But I think at the very least, every character is super endearing. And like you want to see, you know, you, you want to see their story and but you also want to see how they factor in to your version of the game. And yeah, really like taking the player out of that cyclical loop of like having to progress to the next chapter I think has made Octopath 2 feel closer to the original vision for the series. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a, a push in the right direction. And it makes me wonder if they plan on making an Octopath Traveler 3 eventually. Or as we talked about last week, like they did Octopath 1, then they did a triangle strategy, which was like a little bit of a miss, I think, for some people. Um, there are some people who loved it, obviously, but it was a little bit of a miss, I think. As I mentioned, like Octopath Traveler 2, to me, the announcement of, of this game felt like a little bit of like, a OK, let's let's recenter ourselves and do what we know what we're good at and just like improve upon the stuff that worked in the first game. And I wonder if the next game is going to be like Triangle Strategy 2 or are they going to try and tackle another like long forgotten square? RPG genre kind of trope or are they just going to jump into Octopath Traveler 3 and try again? Um, I'd, I'd be very interested in uh, honestly any of those at this point. Whereas I was a little bit ambivalent about them going and doing Octopath Traveler 2 I'm now like fully on team if you want to try it again go for it. Yeah so actually in the Discord someone recently shared a tweet from uh, Team Asano um, who is it's roughly the group of people that like work in all these games yeah. like Bravely Default Octopath and Triangle Strategy and they said in that tweet that they're going to be aiming to release games on a more consistent basis. Whoa. I already feel like they're releasing games on a pretty consistent basis so that's very interesting. I, I think specifically for Bravely Default uh, if I'm not yeah. if I'm understanding it correctly. So I would guess that Bravely Default 3 which is actually the fourth game because they did yeah bravely default bravely second and then bravely default two that will probably be the next one which to be honest i'd be the least interested in but i'm also like i liked enough aspects of the bravely default games even though i think they were way more of a miss for me than even octopath one was i'm like that battle system does rule and i think the best pieces of it make it into octopath so i'm curious like what a glow up for that series would be yeah that's the thing for me is like I appreciate that this team is keeping is like spinning all these plates, you know, like I, th I think that that's great. But when I play Octopath Traveler 2 specifically, it has all of my favorite thing, as you just mentioned, it has all my favorite things about the combat of Bravely Default 2, which was a game I did like a lot, but like didn't finish and didn't feel compelled to finish. And Octopath Traveler 2 and the first game just are taking the like the kind of like boost and defense system of bravely default like the brave and default system and just incorporating like the most interesting elements into its combat and i think it's just like better combat i just think octopath traveler 2 has better combat than the bravely default series and it maybe maybe you don't need to keep spinning that one particular plate you know what i mean that's not to say that i wouldn't be open to a bravely default 3 because it feels to me like especially doing the 3ds prep and playing that original game and then playing bravely second and also having played bravely default 2 like it feels like they are consistently like with octopath getting closer and closer to the vision of what that's supposed to be and what i appreciate about bravely default is like it does seem to be picking up fans with each iteration like there are people who loved that first game and there are people who loved bravely second and think it's better than the first one and bravely default 2 seemed like it was a hit for the people who liked the other Bravely Default games. And it makes me wonder if Bravely Default 3 is going to be like, here we go, like do or die. This is our Fire Emblem Awakening. Like, let's see. Yeah. Let's see if we can like make this really happen this time. Um, I would love I would love that. Like how how much fun it would be for you and I to have this like major turn. I think it would be less of a major turn for me and more so for you where we came out and we were like Bravely Default 3 is the best RPG of the year. Like that would be so exciting. 
to be that'd able be, to that'd be awesome. Say, you know? I, I even Octopath Two being like the fact that we're as you know high on it as we are, I think is like a huge turnaround yeah. as well. The team is just getting better at this every time they do it. Yeah. A lot of these games are produced by a person named Tomoya Asano, team Asano. And I think there, there's a specific, like all the square divisions are named something like super unflattering. It's always like creative unit two or something, yeah. you know? Yeah. But, uh, basically like he has led as a producer the bravely default games um as well as triangle strategy and the live alive remake so it, oh, wow. i wonder if this team is like proving they could do something like a chrono trigger remake you know what i mean yeah. like it just feels like they're gauging them at square to be like can you handle one of the like like i just as much as live alive is a beloved game i don't think you just do a live alive remake <laughs> i think you do a live alive remake to test the waters for their already announced Dragon Quest three remake or something like Chrono Trigger. Yeah. You know what I mean? I wonder, yeah, the, the Dragon Quest three remake is really strange. I wonder how, how much of team Asana was working on that. If at all, I have no idea. That's just a guess. But yeah. like, I just am thinking about, cause I don't, I don't know if they did the star ocean one either. So that might be like each game might be worked on a different team at square square is like unknowably large. So it's hard to really know. Yeah. But, but to answer your question, like I, I, I do think like, for me, it feels like Octopath is delivering on the promise of Bravely Default because Bravely Default yes. 1 came out in 2012 and was very much like that game got a lot of eyes on it because at that time there was really no clear interest from Square to preserve their past yeah. in that or, or to like make games in that style. Whereas now I think it's like second to life Sims in terms of like what we get every year. Yeah. You know, Bravely Default was ahead of the curve and has like a lot of really cool ideas. What I'd be curious about if they do a third one is like, what does it do differently from Octopath? Like what is, what is Bravely Default's mission over Octopath? Mm -hmm. Currently, I don't know. Cause for those who don't know Bravely Default, the whole idea is that like, it was one of the first turn-based games other than, arguably like SMT and persona that was built around manipulating turn orders. Like every turn you could choose to default, which would defend and then give you like a bonus action point next turn. And I feel like that idea has become so prevalent and so much turn-based combat. Yeah. You know, I, I think it does a lot to make it feel more active. So I think the people who don't like turn-based combat might think it feels too passive or like you're just kind of going through motions. But like if you have ownership over how the turns go, suddenly there's like a huge risk reward of like, do I stock up points so I can unleash like a bunch of attacks at once? Or do I like do that now? Because like I'm about to die next turn. This is like my last chance. Mm -hmm. That's thrilling. I think that's really cool. And what I do like what Bravely Default does that I think is a notch above Octopath is the amount of jobs is silly. Like Octopath 2 actually has some restraint of like, there are the core jobs you know, warrior, merchant, hunter, all that kind of stuff. And then there are, without spoiling too much, there are actually three secret jobs as well. Cool. Uh, across the map, which is amazing. And they are leveled up differently, so they all feel very unique. But Bravely Default is like, you could be a white mage, you could be a pop star, and just have like sunglasses and like... Just be a chef. I love yeah. how they, just, they have no restraint over the amount of classes you can have. So I think like in some ways, the characters in Bravely Default are like way more moldable. Um, so like if they really want to go all out with that specifically, that could be interesting. But yeah, we'll see what happens. Like I, I'm very curious. Yeah. The Bravely Default 2 for me, when, when I think about my, my time playing that game, it really comes down to just like comfort. Like it just felt like a really kind of like warm hug of a video game to be playing. Yeah. And I, I think 
going into Octopath 2, especially in the beginning hours of Octopath 2, I was looking for that and not getting it because everything felt kind of high stakes because most people's chapter ones are like kind of intense. You know, there are some obviously notable exceptions there, but like they want to be setting up the stakes of the world for you to be invested in. So a lot of those stories are a little bit are a little bit like uh, Oswald's. Yeah, like Oswald's is like wild. And that having (laughs) said, where I'm at now is like, oh, shit, Octopath Traveler 2 has now become my comfort game. Like now that I've gotten past that first hurdle, you know, which is like maybe the first eight to 10 hours, I would say the game has become like pretty chill. And I just I just find it to be like my comfort food. You know, it is the game that I have on in the background while I'm watching Ken Burns documentaries and stuff. (laughs) Yeah. And also like it very clearly broadcasts like every like I think the UI and the like that's something that this team is really good at. Like Triangle Strategy had this as well. where like the UI is really clean and very clear and you'll always know why you're choosing to wander into an area. You might not know what's there, but you'll know like, okay, the, the danger level is like I should be in this level range or like maybe I can. And that way it's like it's not giving away information that is like would be fun to discover. It's arming you with information so you can make informed choices about where you want to go next. Yeah. You know, do you want to go into a dangerous area for for the possibility of leveling up more or like finding cool stuff? Or do you stick to like well-trodden territory to just sort of grind and try to find the like rare enemies that drop a bunch of experience. Right. Yeah. Um, stuff like that. Totally. Um, so I'll just, I'll just end this a little bit by saying that my, my party right now is Casti, Hikari, Oswald and Throne, which is really Ooh, fun. That's a nice combo. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm, I'm really antsy for you to start multi-classing cause that's where I think the creativity comes in Yeah, and you can really like start to morph the characters, but even like on its own, like Casti, for example, has the concoct ability, which like, I think has a ton of variety in and of itself. Yeah, I was really back in. See, I, I just wanted somebody who could really consistently heal the party or like consistently heal in some way or another. And the two obvious ones there are Temenos and, and Cassie. And I was like, Cassie seems the most interesting in term in terms of that. Like Cassie, I, I would have to be engaging with more mechanics and engaging with more depth, I think, um, because Cassie's whole thing being like, I need to concoct all of these uh, all of these like potions and and elixirs and things like that also means like the resource management side of it also means like having those ingredients on hand, which then I think feeds really well into having somebody like Throne on the team who can like steal those ingredients from people in the town um, yeah. and stuff like that. Like it, I just feel like I've kind of created, you know, like SteamWorld build adjacent. Like I have I have this kind of perpetual motion machine where like I am now using all of these abilities from all of these characters to feed into the other characters ability which already feels good before I've even started multi-classing. Um, yeah. Which I, it took a, that's the thing is like, I, you asked me after we were done recording last episode, what my party was. And I think it was totally different at that point. And I, and it's taken a long time for me to like settle in on these fours. Like this is who I'm going to have until I can start multi-classing. Um, and even when I do start multi-classing, I will probably just continue using those four and just adding the different classes to them. Yeah, I uh I, I think finding your favorites is really important. Um like I my party is usually Oswald, Ochet, Agnia, and Throne. Like and I think a lot of that too is the path actions, which like you mentioned, Throne can steal. And what's interesting is like some of the path actions are just a total wash. Like yeah. I never like Ochet, I think is probably one of the best characters in the game and both her path actions are terrible uh she can either just attack someone with one of her beasts to like knock them out of the way which throne can just do without having to do a battle right at night yeah or she can give like she can uh what her like in combat talent is she can catch 
monsters like Pokemon and then have like a bunch of summons at the ready, but she only has so many slots. So if you run out of space, you can choose which monster you want to like turn into food, which becomes like healing items and also items that can buff stats, which that is amazing. Yeah, that is really good. But her path actions are like just sicking one of her Pokemon on a townsperson, <laughs> which is hilarious. Or she can give them like every NPC has food that they like. And if she gives them that food, they'll become a summon, which like is fine. I mean, the thing you'll notice is like every all the path actions boil down to getting items, getting information, getting that character as a summon or knocking them out of the way if they're blocking an entrance. Yeah. And then it's either like a dice roll percentage chance. The character's level has to be a certain amount and they just do it automatically or there's like a battle involved. Yeah. Um, actually, I think Hikari's is a little bit different because he can his unique talent is he can learn moves by dueling people, which is really cool. Yeah. It's sort of like his version of catching monsters. That was, I was about I was about to say that's actually I, yeah. I used to have a chat in my party and I actually swapped her out uh, because I realized that if I am engaging with Hikari's path action enough and picking up enough skills, I then have a pretty well-rounded amount of different kinds of damage that I can do on other enemies, right? Because for just a quick refresher, when you're fighting enemies in, in Octopath Traveler, they have all these different weaknesses that you need to be exploiting to lower their guard down enough that any attack will do its full amount of damage on that enemy. And with the setup that I have now with the four characters in my party, I am missing a couple of those damage types. Like I'm missing bows and I'm missing, um, there's, there's another like, basic attack that i'm missing but i could just make all of that up with hikari which is really great like i could just go out yeah. and seek somebody who has a bow ability beat them in combat and then have a bow ability on hikari even though he technically doesn't have a bow equipped even which i think is like amazing they'll also inform your multi-classing because they will get access to all those weapons yeah so like i have a chet as a warrior so she has axes lances swords and bows amazing that's the the full the full monty I think Ochet and Hikari fill a similar role, so you'll probably want one of them on your team. Mm -hmm. And it just depends on like which action you prefer. But w one of my favorites that I forgot to bring up last week is Agnia's. So like Throne like steals shit from people, and it has a percentage chance of being noticed. It's one of the best abilities in the game. Because they like getting items and stuff. Agnia though is just like so nice that people just give her stuff yeah. which is so like i just love that spin on a thief just like everyone just loves her so she just like gets things for free yeah um <laughs> i had this moment like the the thing that is a slow burn about octopath 2 are all the side quests because like the game is very straightforward in terms of its sense of progression but you'll notice like in towns there are people with orange dialogue boxes that indicate a side quest and they're all kind of like simon's quest adjacent in terms of how obtuse they are. Yeah, like, they could be really, really vague. I had two happen totally by accident that I don't really mind spoiling because I, I think it's cool to share. Items that are like quest specific will have a different like icon next to them, which I like. So there was like an icon item on this person's inventory and I had like a 50% chance to steal it. And I was like, I'm going to go for that. Because some side quests are like people just looking for an item and then they'll be like, oh, thanks for getting that for me. And, you know, it's done. But... With this one, I stole it. And the person was like, you know what? Keep it. I've been hanging on to that. Like, that's like my ex-husband gave me that like 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I need to get over him. And I already feel like a weight lifted <laughs> because you took that away from me. <laughs> and I'm like, how did the, the stealing shit, you know, result in this like moment of moving on for a character? Another time, my favorite so far was I was in a store and there was a little girl there and two people at the register. And the little girl was like, oh, she was like nervously saying, welcome. 
you wouldn't really think twice about it, but it was a little weird. And I had the option of knocking out one of the people in the store, which I did. And then they were like, thank you. That person had a knife to my back and was like pretending to be my mom. It's the kind of game where if you're picking up on little details that feel weird, like pursue that curiosity. Yeah. Which again, I think like opens up the sense of the game being led by curiosity and not by obligation. That makes it so fun. And again, to be clear, the stories are very simple. Almost all of them are like, there's an evil person that's kind of a counter to the character Mm -hmm. doing something shitty. There's an evil dancer, there's an evil hunter. But I think the characters are strong enough and the world is interesting enough that you like want to see them, you know, and it's just, it feels like a treat for playing. Cause it's, I think the game is comfortable letting you fill in the blanks a lot to get that kind of splash of story is like a moment and not like the main event. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think now might be a good time to also pivot into the other game that I, I wanted to bring yes, up here, yes, yes. which is uh chained echoes, which is a game we haven't talked about since uh, I, I looked it up earlier. We haven't talked about it since like May, um, which we've we have been uh, affectionately calling 2023 game of the year chained echoes since we brought it up on the first episode because it just came out so late in the year. Like it came out like mid December of 2022 and was like just too late, I think, really to to count, even though I had set a goal for myself that I was like, if I play it for like 10 to 15 hours before we record the Goatee episode, I think it counts. And I did do that. But at that point, I was like, it just felt weird to include. Um, so we decided for us, at least it counted for this year. And I have found in in putting my goatee list together and just like staring at backlogged as I usually do that over the course of the year, I think it's maybe just like a case of recency bias in a lot of in a lot of cases or whatever. But Chained Echoes just like started moving down lower and lower and lower on my overall goatee list. And I was like, this this feels wrong. And the reason that it's happening is because I haven't played it since like probably January or February personally. So I decided to dip back into it. And I don't know, I, I just this is less of a conversation about chained echoes, which I still think is great. And all that stuff still stands. I'm just curious from your perspective, do you ever find when you take a really long break away from games like that, that the best move for you is to just start them from the beginning? Or do you do you jump into old save files and then just be like, well, I'll just figure it out from wherever I got? Um, It really depends. I think it depends on how like how much I remember and how clear it is where I was. Mm-hmm. There are some games where like it might actually be impossible to remember like where I left off. Yeah. But I think it's like 50 50. Like I remember um, actually Persona 3 I beat for the first time early last year and I started that before the show because I remember I had played I had finished Persona 4 and then I started Persona 3 right after mm-hmm. And I was, I actually need a break. I see the calendar when I close my eyes (laughs) and I took like a five year break and then finished that game for our big Patreon episode uh, with Alana and Callie about three, four and five. Yeah. And with a game like Persona, I actually found it to be easy to pick back up because like it is so inherently tied to the calendar. I kind of knew if anything, I actually think Persona games benefit from that break because it feels like you're like visiting old friends. And Mm. I, I actually, uh, I started playing Persona 4 Golden again early this year and then I took a long break and then I went back to it this summer during our hiatus and it was summer in the game. Perfect, and that yeah. was like a really fun feeling that like I was checking in on this game kind of seasonally. Um, but yeah, it depends. It depends. I, often I think the move is just like if it's something like Zelda, I'll just start over You know, I'll just start from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I if I've stopped like halfway through, yeah. But yeah, other games I I feel anyway. So did you start over with Chain Decos? Is that where you're leaving? I did. Yeah. So so my my yeah. answer to this usually is um I will start over 
And the the goal of starting over is usually to play far enough in that I feel like I have a pretty good handle on all the mechanics and what's going on. So then I can then go back and pick up my save file wherever I left off. It's more just like grounding myself in a game based on the like opening hours and tutorials and stuff um, just to like kind of get a handle on that um, and then diving back in. But a game like Final Fantasy 16, which I dipped back into a couple weeks ago when doing Goaty prep, that was one where I felt very easily like I could just kind of pick up where I left off. It does help that they have the active time lore button in that game. So you could just bring up <laughs> a Wikipedia page of everything that's happened and how every character relates to every other character. There's also just like in in the base, the home base that you're in in that game, there's a character you could talk to who just like keeps a library of all of that information so you could just like go talk to them about the state of the world and stuff so that's very easy i will say easy to miss another plug for octopath traveler 2 if you ever check your journal they have detailed yes. every beat of every character story they'll show how far along you are in it and they also do the same for like all side quests for each area of the world and they do it where like the character is posing in front of like a stained glass window that represents their story it's a really fun way to like gamify data basically yeah that could have just been like a cold spreadsheet that was the reason i didn't start over with octopath 2 was when i when i loaded up my save file i was like oh yeah i could just read all of this stuff and i just did i just went through every character read all that stuff i was like cool i'm back in and then just was back in another game that does this I, I like sharing this out because i think this is an element of game design that goes kind of uncelebrated sometimes but another game that has an excellent journal that i almost like more than the game itself is witcher 3 <laughs> i am obsessed with that game's like glossary of a character just because it's updated you know uniquely to the choices you're making mm -hmm. and it's also written from the point of view of dandelion i think the the like bard character mm -hmm. that game has like an awesome glossary of information yeah uh but i digress chain deckers yeah, I, I, I don't know. The point being, um, Chained Echoes, I'm in like, I would say halfway through Act 3. Like I am with with the save file that I started way back when, like I made it really, really, really far into that game and I made it almost to the end. And then I think that's when like stuff started coming out in 2023. That was like when Octopath Traveler came out and we started to get closer to like Resident Evil 4 remake and things like that. Um, so obviously just like diverted a lot of my attention but now that i'm back in that game and then zelda came out yeah, yeah and zelda. <laughs> um now that i'm back in that game and i i did start a clean save file just for this um first of all again the opening of that game is just astounding like what they're able to establish it's really good yeah both from like character perspectives and also world building perspectives like really early on just amazing this idea of like being part of this kind of like mercenary group being hired by just like a random army to go in and, and try and find uh, like a big kind of Final Fantasy ass crystal and realizing that it's been replaced with what is essentially like a fantasy version of a nuke um, that just like wipes out tens of thousands of people on the coastline and leads to like peace after hundreds and hundreds of years of like constant war. I think they said seven generations of war have uh, just like continuously strung together until this thing happened that created a peace treaty in the world for the first time. And then just like experiencing immediately switching from those characters to new characters who are experiencing how tenuous that peace is immediately just does such a wonderful job of establishing all those characters and also establishing like how much is at stake in this world world and knowing that there's kind of probably some kind of fire emblem those who slither in the dark thing going on in the background i it just it's just all so intriguing and it's all so good and and the things that they've decided to pull from in terms of all their inspirations really just coalesce and feeling really unique um so i i have gone from being like chained echoes is this like strange memory i have in my head to like now that it's solidifying again, I'm remembering how great that game was and, and how much I appreciate so much of the quality of life stuff. I think especially comparing it against 
Octopath Traveler 2 like pretty directly. It just does some things that I wish more games like Octopath did, like the ability to just like jump into combat. And as soon as you get out of combat, you're just completely refreshed on health and your magic is like just such an amazing quality of life thing that allows me to feel like I can use all of my abilities in every combat at all times and not have to worry at all about that kind of resource management, but instead focus more directly on things like the overdrive system and things like strengths and weaknesses that these different characters have. Whereas Octopath 2, as much as I love that stuff, and I think that the resource management side of it is is an important piece of that design and making things feel like a little bit restrictive at times, I do feel feel like there are sometimes elements of the combat that I don't get to engage with despite wanting to. And those are the moments in which I'm like, I just I need a little bit more of the juice there. I need a little bit more of the of the, of the fire, you know, that's interesting. I mean, there are some things that took me a while to notice because like so, you know, with Octopath, you have HP and, and magic and then I think it's called BP yep. battle points. Those are the like if you have more than one, you can like kind of do what Bravely Default does and do like act twice so you can like hit a button twice and your character will either attack twice or they'll do a more powerful version of that ability. Some abilities, like uh, when you start getting the legendary beasts in Ochette's story, a lot of them require full charge to even be used. Right. But that always resets every battle. Like no ma- even if you saved all of them at the end, every battle starts with one. So you are encouraged to use that every battle. But I, I know where you're coming from and I think overall I agree with you. But I think with Octopath it is necessary to have that restriction like to have the need to have items that heal or like to properly stock up in a town before you set off because exploration is such a crucial element of that game i think it might it would reduce the weight of it if everything was just automatically healed after the battle but i know i think for the intent the intents of chained echoes which is a much more narratively driven game having that you know allows the battles to feel like full spectacles each time so i agree with you there but i think it's more of a case-by-case thing for me to have that specific quality of life feature yeah i, I think just to be clear I, I i don't think that every game needs this i just think in in the case of playing the two side by side and and comparing them especially in a goatee sense i'm i'm getting to a point where i'm realizing what i specifically want out of games like this yeah, yeah. you know and, and right. i think i i am more driven towards games like chained echoes i think that are trying to take these old established rules of the genre and trying to iterate on them and modernize them in ways. And Octopath Traveler 2 is very much a throwback, right? Like it's trying, it's trying to do a completely different set of things. As you said, like the intents of the, of the two games are completely different and they both are great and working for me in their own ways. But I just, it's, it's been really interesting to have the like mechanic whiplash of going back and forth between Chained Echoes and Octopath (laughs) Traveler and being like, okay, in Octopath Traveler, I'm going to go into this combat and I'm going to use all my abilities and it's going to be so fucking sick. And then realize like oh shit hikari doesn't have any magic left over <laughs> from, the, from the last battle where i where i right. really really killed a squirrel as good as you can kill a squirrel <laughs> maybe i should have saved all that stuff for the boss fight that was coming right after <laughs> what's interesting is the thing that has actually kind of been a pain point for me like i also think chain echoes is excellent i'm not as far as you but i do think like to talk about these, you know, the, the big three of this year, uh, Sea of Stars, Chain Echoes, and Octopath Traveler 2, each going after a very different piece of like this kind of nostalgic retro RPG structure. Uh, Chain Echoes by far has the most ambitious and interesting story, like yeah. no contest. <laughs> and again, I don't think the other two, like I think Octopath is like 
banking on being simple and familiar. I think one of the one of the people who worked on that game said it was actually a design choice to have the stories be able to be explained in one sentence. Mm-hmm. That was by design. Yeah. Whereas Trained Echoes is is inherently like a modern interrogation of a lot of those retro ideas. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot about political intrigue and like people's places in those politics. I mean, it's, it's fascinating, but notably both of them do have eight party members. Yes. <laughs> and, and I, I think, I think varying degrees of success in both games in terms of uh, how, how well those characters are explored. The pain point for me with the battles in Shandekos was I felt like every battle was asking for all of me. Whereas I think, (laughs) you know, like every, not that it was like necessarily difficult, but every battle took like, even like random encounters would take like a few minutes Mm -hmm. and they would all require certain element of strategy. Whereas I think games like Octopath and Persona 5, I think my gold standard for turn-based combat, both know that like we're giving you these random encounters to kind of just show off where you're currently at. So that way when there's a boss battle, you can actually kind of see where you can improve your party or like where Mm -hmm. your blind spots are. But like most of the battles are like over in a few moves. And I really think Shane Deco's could have done better with that because it just was like, why am I fighting like a, a pepper monster for like 20 minutes when I just want to see the next thing. Like I actually felt more taxed by the random battles, but I think the battle system is really cool. Like the overdrive system alone kind of reframes like the risk reward of like doing certain actions in a turn. Yeah. I do want to see more of that game. And I think like, I love the characters. I I really like that game has a specific approach, a kind of a game of Thrones style story that actually works really well for yeah, me. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. Yeah. I think, um, what one day, hopefully you'll hit act three uh and you're gonna lose your fucking mind <laughs> act, act three is yeah. i think where that game like takes off and just like launches itself into the stratosphere uh and and is just spectacular and um that said though i mean there are a lot of battles that come before act three that are just so brutal there's there's one section that i think you and i talked about on the show or maybe off the show um there's there's one section where your party gets split up um, into these like kind of random groups and one of the groups is just the thief by herself um, like trying to make her way through this cavern and the combat sequences are so unfair levels of difficult uh, in that moment like it's just so brutal to just have one character after you've gotten used to having your whole party together um, and being able to like experience and ex- and experiment with the interplay between all of their abilities and stuff to just be limited down to one again ends up being more frustrating than fun but the moments like that are i think few and far between and even in moments like that you could just hop into the difficulty settings and like tone it down just That's for true. that moment which i really appreciate i found the leveling up system kind of confusing like I, I still don't fully know like in terms of investing in certain skills and abilities like the ui is not clear at all in terms of what you're investing in I disagree with that pretty vehemently. I think it's oh, really? for, for me. Yeah, for me, at least I, I, I love it, love it, love it. And actually wow. didn't even realize how much I loved it until I have been. I started over and started playing it again and was like, oh, man, this is so nice because it gets it gets into, as we talked about, the, the Chrono Cross thing where it's like you're you're leveling up by completing story moments. And I think similar to Octopath 2 with with what you were talking about and, and Persona 5 and things like that, where 
the random encounters are ways for you to understand what you need to be leveling up. I think you get a pretty good sense in Chained Echoes because every battle is a high stakes battle. You get a pretty good understanding of like your strengths and weaknesses of your party members pretty easily. So, you know, like, should I be using this to unlock a new skill or should I be using it on like a blanket, like stat upgrade? Like, does this person just need more health or do they need a way to spread the poison that they're shooting to other people? Yeah, you know? I, I, I like that angle of it. I'm talking about the specific like skill menu. Like when you, when you are looking at the like, I pause the game to look at the menu and I'm choosing where to invest points. Personally, I think that is a mess. Like, I'm very happy that this is the most divisive we've ever been in our five years of doing the show. <laughs> this specific menu design. This is just like, a precursor to the Goatee episode, I think. Yeah, I I just don't think that we're, that doesn't, for whatever reason, the way my brain works, I don't, like, I have no idea what I'm doing in that menu for most of the time. Wow. But anyway, great game otherwise. <laughs> uh, and, and that's something where, like, I just... I just have to know that I don't have time to put like significantly more time into it before we record. So like, I don't know whether or not it will make my list, but I definitely want to revisit. Like I definitely want to talk more about the story once I've seen more of it. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. So very excited for that. Cool. Speaking of act three, I have another <laughs> update on Baldur's Gate three, believe it or not. Can you I, believe it? Can you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I won't spoil what it is, but recently Larian has been kind of like impish with their announcement <laughs> of the most recent patch. So, so th something that I wanted to bring up even separate from Baldur's Gate three as a game is I think it's, it's really interesting to see how Larian is approaching, like updating a game. Mm. In our in our current industry of like live service games and DLC, I think it's really fascinating and hopefully trend setting to see a company as big as Larian with a game as successful as Baldur's Gate 3 releasing what is essentially DLC for free in patches. You know, like I, they've been very vigilant about patching Baldur's Gate 3. To be completely fair, it on launch was maybe buggier than most games, especially once you got towards the end. Yeah. I, I see some people say they just didn't get an ending when they beat the game. <laughs> oh my it, like, God. <laughs> it just like glitched out. It wasn't like unplayable by any means, but I think it was noticeably in need of some patching. And it's such a huge game with so many interacting systems. There's, there's always going to be unforeseen possibilities especially when you're building a game that is encouraging players to play any way they want like quadruple the possibilities so like mm -hmm. by no means a slight against larry i think it's amazing this game even works but they've been <laughs> to their credit they've been really vigilant about patching it and they've released really detailed patch notes about like what is being fixed some of them are really funny where it's like you know like this character no longer just goes blonde when they wear a hat like just things like that that you maybe didn't even know were issues yeah but they've also done this thing where like almost every recent patch has not only come with bug fixes but has also like really listened to player feedback and added new content so one of the big things most recently was adding a mirror that's in like this magical mirror that appears in the camp. And if you it essentially allows the player to change their appearance after they've already made a character. Yeah. So if you've made like this is a famous woe for any, you know, player character where you can customize their appearance. Like I remember specifically in Dragon Age Inquisition spending like hours in the character creator and then I saw them talk and it was like Eldritch. I'm like, I gotta go back and <laughs> change that chin. Um oh, no. so their teeth aren't like coming out of their cheeks when they talk. Uh <laughs> but like, you know, that's just something where it's like that that is 
a feature a lot of people asked for and they added it in, in addition to the ability to customize the appearance of hirelings which are sort of like if for some reason you'd rather have a party of just like blank slates maybe you're playing like an evil character and you don't want the judgment of your beloved companions you can just make a bunch of blank slate hirelings and customize them even more stuff like one of the first patches was it added a whole epilogue for Carlac, uh because players felt like her ending was kind of you know underbaked and loved the character and they mm. listened to that and added an ending and to me that kind of stokes embers of the mass effect 3 thing where i'm like are we possibly treading the dangerous territory of like fans demanding a piece of art be changed to what right. they want is this mass effect 3 i i mean i i'm sure there are pockets of the fandom that maybe are making unfair demands but i think larian has been really smart with what they're listening to because i think it feels like everything they've added is genuinely stuff that they too want to add to the game mm. you know there there's clearly such a love for this game across the board both from larian themselves but also even like following the voice actors on social media like all of them have been so fully embracing like their characters and and the love for their characters which like could also sometimes veer into like parasocial stuff but i think overall it mostly just reads as like admiration of the game like mm -hmm. everyone involved in the game is also a fan of the game which right. is kind of beautiful to see so the most recent patch was 30 gigs the size of uncharted 2 and possibly <laughs> the nathan drake collection uh and it adds a bunch of stuff like there are more dialogue options there's just like more stuff in the game and and most notably they added two new modes to play you can now play like a custom mode so originally there were three difficulties there was like story mode balance mode and then tactician which is the hardest i've actually what's weird to me so i i'm about i just got to act three with my dirge dark urge paladin and i'm playing that mode on tactician and it's been like overall pretty doable nothing has been as hard as my first playthrough like nothing has been as hard as when I just didn't know the game that well <laughs> and, and was like under leveled and got my ass kicked. Yeah. Since then it's all, it's been, I, w I wouldn't say it's easy, but it's way more doable to the point where like, I thought the game was almost too hard when I first played it, but they've added another, uh, uh, even more hard mode called honor mode that gives people like the intense, like you actually can't save scum. Uh, I think, you know, limit, like you really have to play like by the book completely, which to be honest, I have almost no interest in, but I think it's cool that that exists for the people who want it. Mm -hmm. And even more interesting, there's a custom mode where you can just customize like everything about the game to your liking. This is the most exciting thing for me personally. Yeah, I think custom mode is amazing and will probably keep this game like alive way longer than it even would have been already. Yeah. Or, you know, the community active for it. On top of all that, they've also <laughs> added a playable <laughs> epilogue where like for anyone who's finished the game, I thankfully have a save from my first character that's like right before the final blow on the final boss. So I was able just to load that up and then get right to the epilogue. I was torn between like, do I wait till I get to the ending with a new character? Or do I do this with my first character? I'm really glad I did it with my first character because the whole, without spoiling, the whole thing is like you meet up again with all the characters at camp like a few months later. And I felt it, it, it was really emotional. I mean, even though the game came out in August, it's only been three months, like it felt like I, Steven, was kind of reuniting with all these characters, like getting to play as the character I made first. Mm -hmm. And in mm -hmm. some ways is maybe like the truest to me and 
and less of an authored character that I'm making up. Like it was really magical to get. It, it reminded me a lot of the Citadel DLC for Mass Effect, where it's like a little bit kind of fan servicey, but in a fun way. And without saying too much, my read on it, at least the way that epilogue ended seems to be setting up like big DLC or a sequel. So I'm just really curious, like, because I feel like you are so one step ahead of like keeping up with news about like the industry and how things are changing, where things are going. And I'm curious, like what your thoughts are and just how Larian has been handling patches and updates and also has has directly said many times that they are against DLC, that they like want this package to be complete, which probably explains why they've been so adamantly updating it but like now that they are maybe seeing what a hit this has been and setting up for there to be some type of like mass effect continuation of it like just what do you think about that like overall in terms of like the impact it could have on the industry itself yeah where larian's at right now reminds me a lot of where cd project was at pre-cyberpunk i think yes um, yeah. <laughs> which is not 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 to be totally clear here it's not to say they're gonna go down the like dark brutal path that cyberpunk went down um, yes. I, don't, I don't think that that's the case at all but i just mean in terms of like the the way that people feel about larian as a studio and and the ways in which larian has been very very publicly i i think just like disclosing their feelings on stuff like this you know, I, th I think um, a lot of their press releases and their conversations publicly about this stuff is is a lot more candid than most studios would be about these kinds of things, which I really appreciate, especially for a studio of their size. Um, I think I think having like really clear and open communication with players is always going to be the best thing possible in terms of uh, preventing any kind of like blowback or any kind of just like big community uprising against your shit with the flip side, of course, being that like being that open and being that candid about stuff like this and then changing your plans will upset people. Right. I think, I think that's, that's definitely the uh, fear there. Right. I mean, I think that's why you have companies like Nintendo famously saying nothing ever about anything if they can help it until their shareholders demand that they say something publicly. And then they'll be like, well, for you, maybe, be. right so all of that having been said i would trust what they have said about dlc um and especially considering how much content they've just added to this game for free it seems to me like that's kind of their plan going forward and also i mean the game is such a huge fucking mega hit that of course they're gonna make a sequel you know like i i would it would be really wild for larian to work on all of these games for so long to try and eventually get the DD license to be able to make a new Baldur's gate and then be like all right we're gonna fuck off like we're gonna work on something else now um which like honestly i could see them taking a break between Baldur's gate three and four i could see them being like we're gonna make another divinity original sin yeah i would guess divinity is next yeah, for yeah. sure. I could see them doing that as like a way to kind of incrementally build upon a lot of the ideas they've had for Baldur's Gate 3 uh, and, and maybe tease some stuff out and try some new ideas to maybe make their way into Baldur's Gate 4 without like totally giving up like what the magic trick of that game will be. I could see I could see them using Divinity Original Sin as like the in-between testbed for what Baldur's Gate should be when when an inevitable sequel shows up. Yeah, it's interesting to me just to see like the level of success here, which they ha have also just said straight up they did not expect at all because I think, I mean, Larian's been around for a while. There yeah. are a lot of Divinity games and I think they have made a name for themselves making a very specific style of game mm -hmm. for a very specific person 
or people. Yeah. And for that to then just become mainstream, I think is a really magical thing because I mean, like as much as we criticize Nintendo, like I understand for the amount of Nintendo customers and fans to kind of keep that distance is probably a necessity at a certain point, (laughs) you know, like Larry and I think is in a fortunate position where like, they've earned so much good faith over the years of like being like the people that are best at this style of game. And I, I don't know, just, I think it's really exciting. And, and kind of what I'm hoping is like, I, I don't know if suddenly every other company is going to be like releasing, you know, what would have been DLC for free. But I, I just wonder if this is maybe the beginning of a positive change. And I, to be clear, like I do think there's another angle of this where like people should be compensated for their work. Like if they're, if, they're, if people are going to work on additional content for a game, I'm happy to pay for it. But the, the issue is like what becomes DLC, like what should have been there on launch, et cetera. So I'm just wondering if like the success of this game and the way in which it was both released and then updated will possibly shift the industry in like a better direction where I feel like for so long the default has been like release the game in whatever state it's in by this date that the shareholders are demanding and then hope for a redemption somewhere down the road. And to be clear too, Larian is also not a public company. So they have the benefit of not having to like appease shareholders in the same way. Mm-hmm. But still, I just wonder if this is the beginning of a positive change. I respect your optimism. <laughs> I yeah. I think this is yeah. a I think this is a nice positive thing for Larian. I don't think we'll see like I don't think The Sims Five is gonna have <laughs> right. No, I'm not. I'm not expecting <laughs> EA to, to like to Scrooge overnight. You know, I, I just like... I I think I think the the cleanest way of saying what what I'm feeling in my heart of hearts is like I would never ever put it past companies to learn the wrong lessons from other game successes. Sure. You know? No, you're, you're right. I'm not naive enough to expect like, and then that's how DLC ended, you know? Uh, or, you know that's, <laughs> yeah, horse horse that, armor no more is what the little kid with the newspaper is saying at the corner. <laughs> the, the giant omelet from Neopets is real. And you don't have to spend money on food anymore. I just, I will say the reason for my optimism, however naive it is, is I just think a hit of this size being released in this way. Yeah. I could at least see some delusional people super up top at these companies not being as comfortable releasing like half finished games. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. I think that's the bigger thing for me is like, I, yeah. I, I think as you mentioned, this era of releasing games, just like completely fucking borked and expecting yeah. people to pay full price for them is like, that can't continue. It just yeah. can't like it that really unsustainable. And, yeah. and we're see we're seeing the effect of that. I mean, um, we're recording this, uh, it's December 3rd, the day we're recording this, um, giant bomb has been doing their game of the year deliberations. And one of, the games uh that they sorry to spoil this for all of you giant bomb heads out there but one of one of their categories was the best game that they bounced off of which is like what game do they think is great but none of them you know continued playing to completion for whatever reason and their their answer for that one was uh star wars jedi survivor which is a game that famously launched completely fucked up i mean it was like even even i someone who really 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 enjoyed that game had a lot of graphical issues on the ps5 it was like i don't want to say unplayable on pc but there were enough issues that people like couldn't progress you know and and beat that game 
And that's just one of those games where, like, I don't know if it'll ever have a redemption arc, even though that game has been patched and runs fine now. I don't know if anyone's going to go back to that game and give it, like, the reappraisal that it, I think, like, very, very much deserves because of the way it launched. And I think having kind of, I don't want to call them flops because the game still sold very well, but having those kinds of public backlashes over and over and over again is not going to be good for the sustainability of your business, especially, and you know, disclaimer, disclaimer, I work for the Walt Disney company, et cetera, but like, especially for a company of the Walt Disney company size that has been around for a hundred years as of this year and knows, I think full well, at least based on like corporate communications publicly and town halls and things like that, they seem to be very much on the side of like storytelling and our relationship with our consumers is the most important thing. Having games being released with your intellectual property in a state where people won't spend the money on it and you can't recoup those costs is not a way to build a long-term financially successful business, you know? And I, I think, I think that has to change. I think that has to, and will change. Yeah. And, that, and that's kind of what I meant in terms of like maybe the positive impact that Larian success will have elsewhere is just like and again like not every game is going to be the size and scale of Baldur's Gate 3 and some might even argue the bugginess of that game was was actually too much at launch yeah I was about to say I, I don't think I don't think Baldur's Gate is like you know the, the prime example of it I think they've done a great job kind of rectifying the situation but there are I mean you can go online there are a lot of people who are like pretty upset about the state that that game launched in and and have not gone back to it because of that and that first impression is so important because that's that's the thing that people are reviewing right like when yeah. you're reading a review and it like um, people like skill up on YouTube being like, I do not recommend X game. A lot of the time, you know, somebody with his size platform, he's saying that based on the fact that like he is a primarily PC gamer. And a lot of these games when they hit PC just like aren't running well, you know, and that'll be enough to make a purchasing decision for a lot of people. And that could be the the balance between succeeding or not. Um so I my feeling about this, I, I think may, maybe this is wrong. But if I had to like just completely gut check about what 2024 is going to be like, I think after 2023, 2024 is going to be a much slower year. And, and I don't even mean in terms of like big AAA releases or like possible game of the decade releases coming up back to back to back like 2023. I just mean specifically after seeing so many games like Jedi Survivor come out and like Baldur's Gate 3 come out and have all of these, you know, bugginess issues just like kind of out of the game. I could see a lot of developers kind of taking a step back and saying, maybe we do give it another six months or maybe we do put it back in the oven for a little bit longer. And I think 2025 will be a much bigger year for games than 2024, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, even just what we know is coming out. Like, I think for us, the beginning of the year is very busy with like FF7 remake yeah. or rebirth and and the Persona 3 remake. That alone is a lot. Um, but you're right. I mean, this this year has been big on a on a mainstream level in multiple corners yeah i mean in our time doing this show i feel like 2020 and 2023 have been like the biggest years in terms of number of huge triple a releases that have been well received like every year every year is solid by the time we get to the end of it but i just think like last year for example as we've said many times was like elden ring and then everything else yeah and this year feels like there are five elden rings yes. you know there there are multiple games that hit that level and I, I do wonder, too, in terms of my question for you about, like, what is the impact of the success of Baldur's Gate 3? The games that sold really well and were really well received critically, I think were not the ones most people expected mm -hmm. in some ways. I think Baldur's Gate 3 was, was a pleasant surprise for everyone involved yeah. in a way that maybe there was more of a expectation for, like, Jedi Survivor or Starfield or other games that, like, did well by all means, but 
maybe weren't in those conversations in the same way. Yeah. And in pop culture in the same way. Totally. Yeah. I feel like Starfield was such a shoe in, you know, for such a long time. And then the closer we got to release, the more it was like, oh, people are really not going to like this, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Rough. And, and I mean, just speaking to feel, you know, feelings about next year, like now that Starfield is out, we kind of don't really have any insight as to what Xbox's strategy is for Xbox Game Studios and like what's coming in 2024 or 25. We know a couple things here and there, but really not that much. It was like all all roads lead to Starfield and after that, like recalibrate. Um, and I think Starfield not being the gigantic behemoth success that most Bethesda games are when they come out is probably like shaking their their strategy a little bit if i was to guess internally i don't think i'd walk away from the release of starfield being like i am super happy with this and we should just keep on doing things like this over and over again yeah having I mean, that and redfall in the same year is like crushing you know yeah i mean again like starfield is one of the best i think it's one of the best selling games of the year yeah but critically kind of lukewarm and again like i'm very offline and i just sort of talk to my friends you're right about this friend, but I, I just don't see a lot of passion for it yeah you know i don't see it i i see i see more passion for octopath 2 honestly than yeah. starfield yeah uh, i think it, also I, what what a year for the b teams at square i'm just gonna like <laughs> incredible that that they've put out so many hits this year yeah i think um I th- so the what is it? The day after this episode comes out is when the game awards are happening. And as with every year of the game awards, um, it sounds like we're getting a bunch of reveals, a bunch of new games getting announced. And Xbox specifically has said that they have like pretty big plans for reveals at the game awards, which I, cool. which I think, I think is exciting. And I'm, I'm, I'm interested yeah. to see like what they are bringing to the table and what their next couple of years are going to look like. Cause if, if their strategy maintains being releasing something, maybe not of Starfield size, but like a big first party, xbox game studios game every quarter straight to game pass we don't know what the next one of those is even um so that's that's kind of exciting to know about honestly i'm just weirdly excited for the game awards as like fraught and weird as i feel about some of the stuff that's happening around the game awards this year like with the indie game stuff and uh, the the ways in which the like uh the future creators team like needed to pen a letter saying like jeff you have to talk about palestine like at all my guy yeah you know stuff like that like i'm not feeling great about the game awards as like like a a, a recognition of the successes of the medium kind of experience but as like a big marketing event to learn about a bunch of new stuff i am excited about that because jeff always does like really lock down a bunch of shit yeah that's probably the best way to view them i've been in terms of like speaking to world events i've been repeatedly let down by the game awards in that way yeah but we have like we have like the baftas and we have like the igf and stuff like there are other events that feel like they are actually doing the thing that we want the game awards to do so yeah and and, right. and knowing that that's the case i think i kind of walk away from them being like i will just watch for the reveals and like you're just gonna tell me like the most insane thing possible one game of the year probably <laughs> yeah i mean that i'm i am actually interested like I, th- I think the game of the year lineup is pretty strong to be honest mm-hmm. uh like i saw i i just muscle memory only looked at that i didn't even bother clicking on like games for impact because like i saw in the discord people were upset about the indie games i'm like i fully expect exxon to get an indie game nomination <laughs> like, basically what has happened yeah yeah i like don't i i if you're coming to the game awards for indie coverage you are gonna get heartbroken they're just not good at it <laughs> you know it's just it's just yeah how it is it's how it is but yes i i too am excited for world premiere uh and get a nice glass of mountain dew ready and, and really strap in learn what master chief is up to you know <laughs> what's he got going on you- i guarantee 
I mean, this is already pretty heavily rumored, but I guarantee the next Bethesda game will be a remake of one of their established hits. Yeah, all, all signs point to Oblivion. I just, that's the one I don't want. Don't touch it. Don't make it cool or look good. <laughs> Leave it. It's perfect. <laughs> Yeah, I, d- I don't want this weird off-Broadway experience to become an on-Broadway experience. You're microwaving something that has fermented perfectly. You know, it's <laughs> like, I would be way more interested in, in a Morrowind remake, personally. But, I mean, we've talked about Starfield. I I enjoy my time with that game, but I, I do still have a lot of the same reservations about, like, my confidence in Bethesda that I had before I played it. I think in five years, Starfield will be remembered more fondly than it is now. I, th- I think in five years after a bunch of DLC and all of that stuff, like, a bunch of patches, I I, th- I think, see, I think they've built a really good foundation for what will be the game that people wanted it to be eventually, but right now, I totally agree with where you're at. Even as the person of the two of us who likes it a lot more i i am still like i do i want more at i played like 100 hours of that game but i i would like to i would like to think more fondly of it and want to go back yeah you know i'm not having the feeling of going back to it the same way i do with skyrim and oblivion every year is what i mean no contest like and i think for me i i just uh there, there's a lot to unpack there just about like scale and ambition and the, the idea we talk about a lot of like games having to be the biggest and the best and bethesda has defined themselves as like making the biggest games ever each time. Uh, I, I do still think there's a lot of potential for Elder Scrolls 6 to be like as big of a hit as it like currently needs to be. But I also don't expect to get that game until I'm in my mid 40s. So mm. we we have no idea. Azura willing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just got really hungry all of a sudden. I think Azura willing is the perfect... <laughs> phrase to to end this episode we did say before we started recording that we were going to try and keep this one short and this segment by itself has been over an hour so we should probably i did not expect this to un un i mean i think it's a big question right yeah this is all just musing but i think it is kind of fun to reflect on the state of things especially as the year ends so yeah thanks uh malcolm Grabland. is it land grab or grab land it's <laughs> malcolm land grab malcolm land grab and, and mama <laughs> mama land grab or mom mama land grab Ew. uh Let's get out thank of you for <laughs> thanks for listening you know the drill into the cast that online is our website that has links to everywhere you can listen to the show if you really want to help us grow you can share it with a friend or rate and review us on apple Podcasts or spotify links to the patreon are also there we have a weekly show called any percent where we're given a prompt and we have to answer it or address it in 10 minutes or less it's been we've been how long have we been doing that it's like almost a year now right oh my god I feel like it's become it? a very very natural addition for us yeah uh, yeah I, I think yeah we're at just about 40 episodes so almost a year yeah we have really big episodes planned for the patreon that i don't want to announce quite yet but if if you felt like you know there hasn't been like that much outside of any percent there will be trust me I, th- I think it'll be worth the wait. Yeah. I feel I feel pretty confident about that. I want to talk more about this during the Goatee episode at some point or maybe the episode after Goatee, but I will say yeah, you you and I, every year we go into new seasons of Into the Eighth, they're thinking to ourselves, like, we want to do something new this season that we did last season. And for those of you who are wondering what the thing we did last season was that was new, it really was like so much behind the scenes groundwork and foundation laying for stuff that we want to do in 2024, which I think when we get to announce that stuff is going to be so fucking exciting. Yeah, world premieres across the board from us. <laughs> uh, get, get your Mountain Dew ready. Uh, Twilight Princess will be coming out uh, later this month, most likely. Uh, right now, the plan is to release it before Game of the Year. So the idea is that I we're recording Game of the Year on the 16th, believe it or not, in two weeks, basically. <sighs> yeah, wild. We'll be doing that. A lot person. of Minesweeper to play. 
Yeah, got a lot of mines to uncover or avoid. <laughs> uh, I got a lot of 3D pinball ahead of me. You shook, you shook the game. You can't play pinball anymore. You shook it. Oh, shit. Well, get what you pay for. This game was for free. What else do I got here? I got Spider Solitaire. I got Solitaire. Um, if you win Spider Solitaire, there's a kind of a, a brief array of fireworks. Brendan walked away, so I'm just kind of filibustering my time. I'm back. Hey. hey. Did I sc- I'm sorry I screamed at you. <laughs> um, so the plan is to release Game of the Year on December 27th, and then the week before that will be Twilight Princess. So... Very excited for that. So just a reminder, like we just another thing we decided after our hiatus is that bonuses shouldn't always have to be monthly because if we want to do like a bigger idea for a bonus or like a series or something like we want to give ourselves time to properly, you know, engage with the with the subject matter. So right now we have three games like planned for like the beginning I don't, I don't want to say Q1 to make it too corporate, but the beginning part of the year, one of which will be the Uncharted episode that we've bumped twice now. So for the Nathan Drake heads out there. Steven's been growing a top hat and a monocle as he's been saying all of this. <laughs> Why am I becoming Malcolm? I I'm just, I'm know. just delivering information. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to swashbuckle. I'm not anyone. the one that even brought up Q1 is all I'm saying. <laughs> Oh yeah, that was that was Malcolmian. I'll, I'll admit, <laughs> land gravity. That was that was was that was land gravity. <laughs> that was Mama S. Um, all right, I feel sick. Uh, so, what <laughs> what one of them will be uncharted, and then <laughs> struggling. We'll probably announce. I would guess we'll announce the other two on the game of the year episode. Yeah, uh, that sounds about or right. in the near future, like that episode or the one after that. So you'll know all that soon. Um, we have been streaming more, so if you want to watch us on Twitch, uh, you can find links there. Also, into the cast at online, and if you miss the stream, they're all backed up on YouTube, uh, which I think you can find us just at into the cast on YouTube as well. I've actually been streaming Octopath Two a lot recently, so I'll probably keep doing that for a while. AJ is also our producer has also been streaming a lot, so definitely check out their streams too. And uh, yeah, that's basically it. Anything else that I missed? No, that's basically it. I don't know if we're doing anything for the Game Awards, but I guess we'll see. Just stay tuned. We, yeah. al- we always feel it out. Like th- when when we watch it and it's like we feel kind of like a, a weird energy bubbling up and like we want to record something right away, we will. But sometimes we just kind of feel like sick and tired afterwards. Yeah, I never so. want to promise that. I feel like there's like a 50% hit rate on us recording <laughs> something based on that. And sometimes we even just like fold that stuff into the next episode of the show. It's not always a leakage moment. I, I can't remember if it was Summer Games Fest or the Game Awards, but there was one where you went to the opera instead and me and friend of the show, Will, watched it together and like i just remember at the end will just went like i forgot what i was excited for like i just like <laughs> oh it just got like the passion drained out of us i think that was the last <laughs> game awards i think you're right yeah because you came out of the opera and i was like you don't need to watch this one yeah like, it's just not and it's not even worth watching yeah this is the 10th year of the game awards that's exciting a decade in jeff a, de- a decade of jeff a decade of jeff for the decade okay uh, thank you, Malcolm, for giving us our items back and for letting me live in your big house. <laughs> I hope you and Mama find happiness elsewhere. And who knows, maybe after I spend $1,000 on The Sims 4, I'll see you in The Sims 5. Bye-bye. What EA learned from the success of Baldur's Gate 3 is that you should actually charge $2,000 <laughs> so you can be closer to the number three, which is why that game did well, in their opinion. 
but they don't want to like blatantly copy it. <laughs> Just change it a little bit. Yeah, we're really going full Malcomian this year for those who have been paying attention. <laughs> I know a lot of you have already said this out loud and thought it out loud, but we really want to seal the deal here. This is some real Return of the King shit, Stephen. I feel like we've said like 15 <laughs> different versions of sign-offs. <laughs> yeah, this is just Gandalf and Frodo jumping in bed going like, Malcolm, join us. <laughs> the Shire is mine. Mama, let's go.